Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert, Experts on Expert. I'm Dax Shepard. I'm joined by Monica Padman. Hello. Hello. This is an exciting one for me. As you love magic. So much. I had no idea the scope of My love? our guests. No, I was pretty aware of that. <laughs> I remember you going to New York and you were inconsolable. You were bawling I during one of them. I cried so yeah. much. No, but I had no idea the scope of success our guest, David Copperfield, had. I did not realize he is the number one live solo entertainer ever. Yeah, it's bonkers. Amazing. David Copperfield is an Emmy award-winning illusionist with 11 Guinness World Records. He has a new book called The History of Magic, which profiles 28 of the world's most groundbreaking magicians while also pulling back the curtain on his longtime secret project, a museum preserving the history and art of magic. Where he was at during the interview. Yeah, so we got to like, take a little peek. Peek in the background. Very interesting. Please enjoy David Copperfield. We are supported by Sleep Number. Oh, mattresses can be a pretty big purchase. It's kind of like a home. You and your partner have to shop around for one that you'll both love, that's comfortable and suited to your preferences. Well, I'm about to make your lives a whole lot easier. Instead of hopping around from store to store, just check out Sleep Number Smart Beds. They're designed for you and your partner's ever-evolving sleep needs. When you see it, you'll know it's the one. I mean, this just changed the lives of my bride and I. The fact that we didn't have to compromise on the firmness of the mattress and the fact that it can evolve as we evolve is incredible. Sleep Number is great because it's all about what you need. You can adjust the firmness to your ideal settings on each side, perfect for couples. The smart beds respond and adjust to your movements throughout the night to help you sleep better. My Sleep Number is an 85. Whether you need something with more support or something to help quiet the snores, Sleep Number has you covered. So sleep better together with a Sleep Number smart bed. It's the only bed that lets you make each side firmer or softer whenever you like your Sleep Number setting. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you, uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah, easy peasy? So easy. Well, the best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. He's an Okay, so you're envious of my chair, which is a, quite a compliment. So my question is, why don't you own one? <laughs> well, I probably should. Send me the link. Okay, yeah, I'll fire <laughs> it over. Are you seated in your museum? Is that where you're at? I'm in the entryway, which is the uh, replica of the magic shop where I started my career at. We actually recreated it. You know, the whole brick and mortar magic shop is kind of becoming less and less because of the internet, for better or for worse, so recreated this here and you know magicians come here and they, they cry when the lights come up and they say oh it's <laughs> the lost world of of actually going to a place to be see magic demonstrated and, and learning it in that way it does exist by the way but we kind of recreated the old school 
version that I had when I was a kid. Monica is, I guess I don't even know what word would describe best her. I love magic. Like on a cellular, cellular and level. celestial level. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love a magic show. Well, you got to come to Vegas. When you come to Vegas, you'll see the show and yes. the museum, which is uh, what this book is about. You know, the book is kind of a, a tour of a, of a museum that few people get to see because of all the secrets. So scholars get to see it and co-hosts of podcasts, famous podcasts. <laughs> uh, most importantly, yeah. how far out of Vegas is it? Is it a hike for you? No, it's about 10 minutes. The MGM where I perform, it's about a half hour from my house. Yeah. Okay, I had some um, fantasy of you being at like Area 51 or something uh, because of the secret nature. But okay, that's good. You didn't drive three hours to be where... No, but it's it's disguised though. It's disguised as a, as a men's clothing store. When my, my parents passed away, oh. I kind of recreating stores. This magic shop, but also the front of the place is a men's clothing store. So it's my secret entrance. Well, I was going to say, yeah, your father was a haberdasher, which is, I don't get to say that often. In fact, I don't think I've ever got to say someone's father was a haberdasher. I don't think he ever said he was a haberdasher. <laughs> he owned a store. The internet says he's a haberdashery, that he owned a haberdashery. So I guess in that way. A men's clothing store, town and country, Corby's Men's Shop. And that was in New Jersey? Yeah, and uh, it was in Metuchen, New Jersey, where I, I was born. I grew up there, and uh, then the mall came in, the Menlo Park Mall. Menlo Park was where Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. But uh, it was good. It was about, that was about a half hour away from where we lived. And how far away from New York was that? or New York City specifically? I was about 45 minutes to an hour away from New York, so I had the best of both worlds. I, I grew up in Mayberry, basically. Um, yeah. the, the town was a really small town, just very, very um, homey. Everybody knew each other. and uh, But I could get on the bus and go to New York City, and there was Broadway and the magic shops and all that there. So I had the, really the best of both worlds. you know. And my parents let me go to New York City. I was 12 years old, and this is the time where there were commercials on TV. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? But my parents let me go there for some reason. I don't know. I guess they wanted to get, get rid of me or something like that. This was like, what, 1966-ish or something? Or 68? Some, some, yeah, 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 exactly. In that time period. Yeah, much different vibe. Big, different. It was deep throat and behind the green door. And, you know, you just, <laughs> yeah. you'd walk away from the buildings for fear of being sucked into the buildings by somebody. Uh -huh. <laughs> you'd walk right on the edge, right by the street, and you'd walk fast, look down, look around. And uh, you kind of learned how to keep your defenses up. But it was really awesome because the Broadway was amazing. So were you going there at 12 because you had gotten admitted to this magic academy? Is that why you were going into the city or was that elsewhere? Well, going to the city early wasn't because you're talking about the Society of American Magicians who had meetings in New York, the Parent Assembly in New York, which was really cool, a bunch of old, old dudes. And they let me in when I was 12 years old. But going in the city, I would do two things. I would second act Broadway shows. Grease was playing and Adrienne Barbeau was Rizzo and Jeff Conaway was Danny Zuko. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And Travolta was like a small part. So they kind of switched when the movie thing came along, they kind yeah. of switched roles. But this is the time where I wouldn't see the first half ever <laughs> because I didn't want to pay. So yeah. the people would come out of the theater to smoke their cigarettes when smoking was healthy back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They smoked their cigarettes and I'd sneak in with them and I'd see the second half of every show that had a second act. A little night music show called Over Here with the Andrews Sisters. And I used to, I loved it so much. I loved theater. And I started to hang out with Bob Fosse, believe it or not, when I was a kid. Got to spend time with Bob Fosse and Ben Vereen because it was a show called Pippin that really inspired me because they had a whole opening scene called Magic To Do. 
which I uh, kind of helped them a little bit with the magic in it. That's how you met wow. Bob. I was gonna say, how do you get introduced to Bob Fosse? Well, I kind of go, go backstage and I hung out with Ben Vereen who befriended me. And through that, I made some suggestions on the magic in the show. And Jules Fisher, the brilliant, brilliant lighting designer, did a whole number, this magic to do number. And so it was kind of my way in to kind of hang out with those guys and, and watch and study. And, and you were 12? Well, yeah. hold on. The, no, the story's so bonkers, it almost wow. feels apocryphal. Because this is hard to believe, but at 16, you, you taught a course at NYU in magic? Is that, yeah. is that possible? Yeah. How does that come about? It was possible. No, actually, the owners of this shop that has been recreated here, Irv Tannen, suggested that um, I teach at NYU. They, they get the calls in the magic shop. We need somebody to teach a course in magic. And they recommended me. You know, I was 16 at the time, and all the kids were older than me. Yeah. And I, I called the course The Art in Magic. That was very, ooh, uh, art in uh, magic. Uh, yeah. Not of magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I wish I could have taken that. Yeah. <laughs> Just imagine, though, I got to imagine being like a 19, 20-year-old, and you walk into your college class, and here we got a 16-year-old guy. He's going to run this thing. That's, that's, I literally just said the other day, because we were watching the 60 Minutes thing about this random college, and there was a little kid, and it looked like she was a professor. And I was like, ugh, can't trust any institution where there's a kid as a professor. But not true. But not true. Well, let me ask you, I have a stereotype in my head about a lot of artists, particularly guitar soloists, guys who get incredibly good at guitar solos or, or women who do, that's going to require untold hours in a bedroom by yourself. <laughs> you yeah. can't acquire that skill without that. And magic, yeah. I would say, is the same. You really got to put the time in, in your bedroom by yourself. And so I have a bit of an idea. Of Why in the bedroom? Why are we going to the bedroom with this? Well, because you shan't want anyone to see you oh, see, as you're learning and you don't want to be embarrassed. You want to just, you want to get great and you don't want anyone to see you. And That's true. So I, would you find that that personality type is kind of consistent through magic? I also have had some magician friends in my life and they were pretty introverted as kids. They spent a lot of time in their room and I was wondering if that is true for you. Yeah, I think so. I found I wasn't good at anything else and magic was my way of of being accepted. And I was a pretty good inventor of magic. I went to the public library and I'd get the magic book. And uh, on the first page, it would show the effect, what the audience gets to see. You know, the ball will disappear this way. And I wouldn't turn the page to see the method. Yeah. I, and I would try to make my own method, figure out what to do to accomplish that goal. And a lot of times I invented my own thing. When I turned the page, it was something new. I liked that process. That was good. When I was 12 years old, I invented a piece of magic called Mento-Pen. This was a mind-reading pen. Oh <laughs> Mento-Pen. And it was in oh. the Tarbell Course in Magic, which is a very, from the 1920s on, the esteemed kind of encyclopedia of how to learn magic by Dr. Harlan Tarbell. And my effect, my creation, got accepted. So I was, I was a published magic inventor when I was 12. Again... My baseball sucked and my hockey sucked. I had no other skill, but that, for some reason, I was good at that. I'm interested, in your life, you were good at you know, your personality and theater and so forth. When you found your way, both of you, I mean, you both are so good at what you do. Did you suck at everything else too? <laughs> um, What's the deal? Well, I think what we're doing here, the skill set is people, getting to know people, being able to connect with people. And so that allows you to be good at a lot of things, I think, because in life, that's kind of the whole trick, right? Well, I would say Monica's a master assimilator. Like, so she was not among many brown kids in Georgia. And so you become a master assimilator. 
You start to read people and see what they want from you and need from you, and you can be that. Yeah. For me, I found that magic was my way of communicating, my way of getting accepted. The sport thing wasn't so easy for me. I did it, but I wasn't great at it. But we're all trying to find our way, right, in life. We're all trying to find that way of communicating. From a magician, a great magician has to be curious. Like a scientist or a physicist, you have to be curious about things. I'd rather be interviewing you, honestly, than, than this. <laughs> but it's really true, because I really like to learn things, like the sponge. But I think in your description of being an assimilator, magic was my tool. Monica, what was your tool to assimilate? Hold on, before we move on for that, I do have to inquire, is it that I don't really feel comfortable selling myself, David, and I don't really want you paying too much attention to David, but I have all this happening in front of me, and that is the thing that you're going to pay attention to, and that's the thing I can control. I mean, was there any sense of that? I think that's pretty, wow, I should be on a couch lying down. <laughs> that's the goal. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe. I think we find our crutches. We all have our crutches. For you, it was comedy and being funny. For me, when I, I started as a ventriloquist, I was a crappy ventriloquist, but the kids liked me when I did it. And I wasn't very, very good at it, but uh, I knew I wasn't good. But I found maybe there's a way of having people accept me. And uh, when I did ventriloquism, the kids liked it. It was like bizarre. And uh, I suddenly went, wow, you can get in front of people and they'll accept you by having prepared something. I got a reaction out of preparing something. And I think I said, okay, that was a system, a formula that made me feel that I wasn't just some, some idiot with nothing to give. Okay. Now I do want to hear Monica's answer, but I just oh. didn't want to leave that. Cause I, I find also musicians, we talk to musicians sometimes that too, the guitar becomes that thing. So the, the guitar is between them and everyone else. And so, and I'm going to do something so exceptional on this intermediate between us that that's what you're going to focus on. And without it, they feel naked. So it's like, if you don't have your props and your things and that you're doing your gag with, then it's just you. <laughs> And I think so much of great art comes from the insecurity of like, I need something other than me to present. That can be why you want to act. That can be why you want to be funny. Fascinating. Yeah. Monica, you're up. Hmm. Uh-oh. How did you manipulate all these people into liking you? <laughs> I mean, I guess weirdly there's some parallels like curiosity. I think uh, directing energy towards that person as opposed to making it about me asking them questions, falling into their world a little bit. I didn't want them to know too much about me because that was the part I was trying to escape from. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean... Well, yeah, if you say if you start and say, what's your favorite band? And they say, Flock of Seagulls, it's real easy to go like, oh, yeah, they're fantastic. You make a mental note like, yeah, I got to check out <laughs> Flock of Seagulls. But, but if, <laughs> if, if they ask you first yeah. and you say, Waylon Jennings... I mean, it wasn't manipulative. It wasn't like I was lying to people like, yeah, I like what you like. It was all happening very naturally, but I think I just made it about the other person. Well, listening is good. Listening yeah. is, is good. I think listening and hearing what people have to say makes them feel like you care about them. And actually, if you really do care about them, then yeah. you're really winning then. If you really do care about that flock of seagulls, or you don't, and this is before you had the, the Google machine to really turn your back and figure out what the <laughs> hell you're talking about. This is, you really had to go to the library. Remember libraries? Wow. Yeah. I think for me as a artist, I listen. I, one of my good things is I listen to the audience. I really listen to them. 
I figure, well, what they want to hear. It's not about fooling them or amazing them. It's about listening to them. What are they really? And all my magic is really rooted in life experience and relatable stories and all that. It's not unlike what you do listening. And that doesn't exist in magic very much, by the way. It's the guy yeah. with the props. You know, they just lead with that. I don't feel naked without the props. I don't. Wait, how about originally, though? Like now, I mean, my goodness, there's never been a more successful magician. So now I would imagine there's a level of confidence. But from the get, and this dovetails into one of my questions, which is we've had, we've had many performers that we've interviewed that went to camp as kids. And had they not had that experience where they went somewhere and everyone was kind of similar <laughs> and they got to really be confident and learn how to be confident and learn how to feel included. And I wondered, knowing you had gone to camp, like, is that a brick in David? I went to a camp called Camp Harmony. It was a day camp. And they did something that was really impactful to me. When a counselor would have to go on a two-week vacation... Indians would come out of the forest. You can't say this today. Yeah. Back in the day when that was unfortunately Cowboys okay. And, yeah. Yeah. We've learned from our history, right? But at the time, Native Americans came out of the forest and kidnapped the person. And we'd spend the next two weeks trying to find that oh, counselor. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Aside from the unacceptable learning experience that we learn today, sure, sure. but the story element of it, having that story was a really amazing thing. Mm -hmm. Being Im immersive theater, basically, yeah. changed my entire path and it stuck with me. So those little anchors that you have in your life that inform your work and your art, that's one I could tell you. Learning how to swim, okay, that was pretty good, but not as fun <laughs> as finding the kidnapped counselor. You know, that was more immersive. The island experience now is informed by my Camp Harmony thing. I do James Bond events there where helicopters appear on the beach. We do laser tag like that. It's immersive. If people want that, it's all elective. There's a mad nurse. There was an old story about the mad nurse <laughs> where she would eat people's flesh. And uh, if people like that, we have a mad nurse that comes around. Goodness. We've got yetis that come out of the uh, thing and it snows on the beach. So it's taking- oh, wow. This is an acid trip without the this acid. Is, yeah. This is like- uh... <laughs> No drugs. Don't do drugs. No. no. Right. But you I don't need that. the hard one. <laughs> <laughs> Every single thing in my childhood, I've used it. I'm not certainly not alone in that. You find what made your jaw drop as a child or made you you want to get up in the morning and say, okay, that was good. How do I use that in what I'm doing today? Yeah. And you have all these moments. On the Ed Sullivan show, there was Topo Gigio. You guys are too young. Topo Gigio, anything? Get your Google machine. No, no, no don't know Topo. The, America was captivated by this. It was an Italian mouse that would be his little <laughs> tiny character. And Ed Sullivan, you know Ed Sullivan, right? Ed Sullivan's Oh, yes, yes, yes. The Beatles. Right. So right before the Beatles would come on, Topo uh -huh. Gigio would come on. A magician on Topo Gigio. <laughs> And you watch this and it's amazing how it moves and how amazing. Ed Sullivan, who's kind of a stoic, not a lot of personality there, but he came to life with this little Italian mouse. Oh, wow. And it moved with about six people behind him, making this, mm. this maybe a eight inch tall mouse move in amazing ways. And you, you would like watch the screen and, and Life Magazine would, would show how it worked. America was like wrapped with this thing. So uh, that was something <laughs> as a child, I thought, whoa. And some of your older listeners 
or remember this Italian mouse, <laughs> it still exists actually. <laughs> so with that informed my show, I do a little thing in my show that's sort of based on that, based on uh -huh. that memory of that. You know, you search for what's gonna be good. What can I really invest my time in to really make something special out of? And that was the seed of a thing I do in my show. It occurred to me, how does a kid learn magic? Because the, the magicians the never give you yeah. the secret. So I guess now I kind of got a little bit of an answer. There were some books available to you in the library, but in general, how does one learn something that's kept secret? Because if you want to do something, you can do it. If you can dream it, you can do it. As corny as that is, it kind of is true. If you search, now we have the internet. You search in the internet, you can find all kinds of things. Back in the early 60s, it would be going to the library and then discovering this magical magic stores. When I walk into this place that I'm in now, I thought I was in heaven. It was like, wow. And when I take magicians in here, they get really wrapped up in that because that memory of opening a door that you believe that if you were able to afford to buy this prop or that prop, you could be on the Ed Sullivan show too. It's not right. true, it not right. exactly happened, but it was kind of a, a false comfort. So many magicians actually are cover bands. They kind of do what other people have done before. I made an effort since I was a child to be different and invent new things. Mm. And unfortunately, people don't know the difference. Layman public doesn't know the difference if it's uh, something you've invented uh, something that you've created or something that you just bought in a store because it has an element of fooling you. Comedians have the same radar. <laughs> and you know, I mean, a lot of great comedians have taken material. A lot yeah, of yeah. great ones have. And they get called out in and they pay off people and so forth. But in comedy, you kind of start to know about it. There's words. You're not misdirected by being amazed. Mm -hmm. mm, yeah, I guess the person's the product more. In comedy, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not about props and stuff. And I try to not make it about props. I try to make it about me or the story are really, truly about them, the audience. They're the most important thing. I've lasted so long because of that. I really do care about what their dreams are. And I try to replicate their dreams as part of the show. But being amazed is a very powerful thing. It is a great gift that magic gives. And the famous Arthur C. Clarke, Quote, I'll get it wrong, but basically it's saying that every piece of new technology is magic. Mm -hmm. Any new technology that looks amazing is indistinguishable from magic. And I think that's a great, amazing thing that gets abused by magicians, but also used by magicians properly. Okay, so I would imagine, again, back to my really overgeneralized stereotype, that going from the room... To me, I can't imagine the scariest part is the illusion you're going to perform, but it's having a stage presence. So I'm curious, what was harder for you? Because at 18, you go and you do the magic man, and you're singing, you're dancing, you're doing magic. And of those three things, what is the scariest, and how did you bolster yourself or find your confidence to be on a stage as the lead? Well, Doug Henning came before me. Do you know the name Doug Henning? No. Mm -mm. Okay, there you go. He was a gigantic star on Broadway. He did the show called The Magic Show. Ivan Reitman, you know Ivan Reitman from oh, yeah, Ghostbusters sure, sure. and so forth. They were kind yeah. of uh, college friends and they did a show in, in, in Canada called uh, Spellbound and that got brought to Broadway. And it was called The Magic Show. And The Magic Show, uh, music by Stephen Schwartz who wrote uh, Pippin and wrote Godspell and wrote a million incredible 
movies, did the music for it. He was living my dream because my dream was to be an actor magician. I wanted to be Gene Kelly. I wanted to be Fred Astaire. I wanted to be Frank Sinatra. I was good at magic, but I wanted to tell stories with my magic. I wanted to move people like Sinatra moved people. I wanted to transport people like Gene Kelly, uh, Orson Welles who did magic, by the way, but Citizen Kane, this is what I focused on, this is my dream, but I was good at magic. Well, this Doug Henning guy comes down here who can't sing, can't really act, but did decent magic. Some of it's store-bought, but very good magic. And they did a whole Broadway show about him. And I hung out with him backstage, it was around during the Pippin time, and he told me I, I was going to be his understudy. And he was my buddy and so forth, but behind my back, he went to the producer, who was Edgar Lansbury, who is Angela Lansbury's brother, and said, don't hire David Copperfield because he's too tall for this stuff. I'm not as tall as Dax Shepard, <laughs> but I'm, but, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm six feet and he was, he too was for tall. Sure. <laughs> I'm so too tall. Anyway, that kind of backstabbing thing that happened really fueled me. It was a very positive thing. I really respect him for doing that in a strange way because hearing that, finding out about that really lit my fire and I found my own path yeah. to do that. So the good thing he did was he opened a big door for me in another way. He had big success on TV. He had a, a special, his first special had a 50 share. A 50 share. Oh, that's unimaginable. That is. Un, that means that half of everybody watching TV watched that that's show. That's crazy. Yeah. And years later, the two hosts of the show don't know who the fuck he is. Oh, Amazing yeah. how that is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, really anyway. quick. We had Leno on. We had Leno on, and he was telling a story about doing a stand-up in Vegas, and he saw three workers carrying this Elvis statue. And he goes, uh, oh, what's going on? Are you going to repair that or something? And the guys said, oh, no, no one really knows who Elvis is, so they're having us take it down. And he was like, well, that, that should tell you everything you should know about yeah. your own celebrity. Like, if yeah. Elvis's statue's coming down, <laughs> no one's going to fucking remember me at no. all. <laughs> there was a, a big film director went to inner city schools and asked about who Muhammad Ali was to kids mm. in inner city schools. They didn't know. Yeah. You know, how is that possible? The point is, really what makes you last? I don't know what makes your legacy last. To me, at the end of the day, it's gotta be good work is all that matters anyway. Just do good work and what happens, happens. Do you care about a legacy real quick? Cause I don't at all. I won't be here to enjoy people relishing in my accomplishments. So why do I even care? I'm not gonna observe it. So if I can't enjoy it, then why do I care? I think that's very healthy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it's just it's selfish. I'm just saying it would be one thing if I could sit above everyone and watch them like me, but I won't be able to watch it. So why do I care? I think that's good math. I think it's well-crafted logic. I can't say that I don't care about it. I do care about it. I'd like to yeah. make some kind of a mark that moves things forward. I do. I'm motivated by it. You a reason like for that. you. I can argue a reason for you that I wouldn't argue for me. Why? Well, A, you've written this book, The History of Magic, right? Houdini, like Houdini represents something to some people that set them on a path for life. And so probably the benevolent notion that you might be one of those people that younger generations learn about and excites them to a path, that has a utility. I don't think I was ever a big enough comedian or a big enough podcast or anything that I'm going to inspire people in 50 years. But Houdini did. So there is some notion that you could achieve Houdini-ness. And that's relevant. Well, you have, I think. I mean, yeah. Well, time will tell. But yes, he's certainly <laughs> very well yeah. positioned to. Who knows? I think when you're good at something, you try to find a way to use it to 
make a difference in some way. Maybe that's a false hope, but I've tried to use magic in therapy. There's a project mm-hmm. magic program, use magic in therapy. Mm. So how do you make a difference there? So I work with doctors and, and it does work and it really is a real thing that could actually help people with motivation, coordination and fine motor skills and gross motor skills and, and with communication skills that we've been talking about, with socialization skills, magic is a great device to transfer into learning how to get dressed again, for example, if you had a stroke. Mm-hmm. A rope trick will motivate a patient to tie their shoes again. In a head trauma patient that has been in a motorcycle accident can get to know their family better because they have something to share. That was a thing and it does work. I'm working with scientists now to find ways of taking a lot of the prototyping of humanity's future that I do. I'm faking what the future will be on stage every night and trying to make it real. And a lot of mm-hmm magic history has made a lot of technology real. The things that you use today were magic effects to begin with. The first smart home that existed was a magic trick. When doors opened by themselves for the grocery store, that was a magic effect that Mm. Robert Houdin did. Uh, Automatic horse feeders was a magic effect. There would be no chips movie if there was not a magician doing the thing. David did his homework. He did his his homework. You're right. When I look at those early Edison things, it's a carousel moving with some light and it gives the illusion that this horse is running in front of them. And that's That's like one step away from film. Yeah. And that is an illusion. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah, easy peasy? So easy. The best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. We are supported by BetterHelp. Listen, I understand that sometimes you want to keep things to yourself, process your emotions in your own time. But if you keep everything bottled up, it can have some serious consequences. I have therapy on Saturday. I'm really looking forward to it. I had therapy this morning. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and it put me in the greatest mood. We had a long, big day, and I just felt much better for having you were some... not to out you. You were a little grumpy going in. I was. I was. I was to be <laughs> Robin, sp- I received some texts. Yeah, I was morning. locked out of my therapy setting, <laughs> which is this attic. <laughs> but then you felt much better after. I felt much better, and I even made some apologies. Um, talking things out can be so helpful, and if you want a safe space for that conversation, I recommend therapy. Check out BetterHelp if you've been thinking of trying therapy. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for any reason for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DAX today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DAX. We are supported by Taco Bell. Ooh. Oh, man. We often 
do two recordings a day and we have this little nice lunch break that we enjoy and we're always craving something really yummy. Yes, something fresh, something high quality, something like the all new cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell, which is Mm. exactly that. Mm. It's so yummy. It has slow roasted chicken, the pico, that purple cabbage and an avocado verde salsa sauce. Oh, delicious. Outrageous. The new Cantina Chicken Tacos, Burrito, and Quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina Chicken menu at Taco Bell now. When Guillermo del Toro came to this museum, he got very emotional when he saw the Melies stuff I have. If you saw the movie Hugo, which he did not direct, Scorsese directed it, it's about George Melies. And movie was a magic trick in a show, a magic effect. You go into a magic show and you see a train come at you. And they always go, whoa, like this. In fact, Coppola used it in the Dracula movie where the yeah. Dracula goes to a magic show and the train comes at you or, or horses will put them. That's all movies were. Movies were, was a magic effect. And George Méliès did a lot of special effects, stop motion and all this, stopping the camera and all kinds of layered optical things that he started. But he, his real contribution to me was he said, we're going to tell stories with this magic effect and do Cinderella. We're going to do a trip to the moon. We're going to do those things. So movies became a movies from a magic effect, which was yeah. cinema. Yeah. So that's for real. That's a big contribution that magicians yeah. made to the cinema. Yeah, they have kind of a, parallel role with science fiction writers. Science fiction writers are crazy on the surface, and then they become a uh, strange angel. Uh, they start JPL. So it is, it's interesting for the, the creative visionaries to think of a concept previously unthought of that then later engineers figure out how to execute. It's like well, it's a pivotal role in it. 100%, but you go back to Da Vinci. Da Vinci drew airplanes and helicopters. They didn't work. <laughs> they didn't <laughs> right, work, right. <laughs> but... You have to credit him for starting it. It took 400 years to make the airplane to get off the ground for a few seconds, like the rebels. 400 years later. But yeah. if Vinci didn't do that original drawing, where would we be? Who knows? And yeah. I think I'm certainly not comparing myself to Da Vinci, but a lot of things that I can do on stage might plant a seed to be real. And it's happened over and over in my business, my art. And I think... Um, whether it's myself or, like you said, a science fiction writer who creates all these impossible things, we do make them real. They eventually become real. A young person reads it and becomes obsessed with making that a reality. That's right. It just gets really heady about, like, what is real, right? Like, when you are doing an illusion and people are perceiving that it's real. Like, it's not. You know it's not, but... I don't know. It just gets very... It's real except for one part. It's the one illusion part. I'm very, very lucky that people bring me technology very early on. Before most people see it, I get to see it early. And I get to use it. I get to hide it and disguise that technology, the new technology in my show. And five years from now, I can't use that stuff anymore because it'll be in your house. But for five years or so, I get a window of time where I could use that to be really amazing. In the process... I've also invented with my team new technology that I like to keep for myself for a while because I can have people enjoy it and then hopefully be inspired by it. And then eventually that new technology that we're creating is real. It'll be in people's homes. In music, 
you compose a song on a piano, right? They use that piano or guitar or, or keyboard to create that thing. In magic, I have to create the piano each time. I have to build the piano first. It's really hard. It takes a long, long time. On that, I have to imagine you would have been an incredible engineer. So that's really what you're doing, right? At the end of the day, every single one of the illusions is, has a mechanical component. Sometimes mechanical, sometimes mathematics, sometimes right. physics, sometimes psychology, sometimes sound. Everything's important. And you take those things and you have something that's amazing. And it's not enough. It's like Pixar. They can make amazing clouds. They'll spend years with a bunch of engineers making clouds or water be amazing. But then... You can't stop there. You have to make the music right. You have to make the story right. Yeah, really quick. It's overwhelming once it occurred to me. Do people often tell you you look like Andrew Garfield? Oh. All right, now that I've said it, you're not going to be able to not see it, I Monica. Can... I've just pulled an illusion. Oh. I've planted a seed. But, but do people tell you you look like Andrew, Andrew Garfield? Uh, Garfield? I've gotten it. He's going to play me in the movie, you know. Oh, he is? Wait, no, really? no, 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 I'm joking. Wait, oh, I'm, jo okay. I'm joking. I'm joking. Oh, oh. I'm joking. Let's I'm start joking. that rumor and then it'll all happen. No, no. <laughs> He'll be grateful for that. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. I'll take it's it. It's uncanny, take it. yes. Yeah. I'd take that any day. Oh, yeah. So I want to kind of try to just speed through in an economical manner your career, which is really, really unparalleled. And just to give some context to that, you would hate me saying this stuff, but I'm going to say it. Oh, I want you to say it. I want you to okay. say it. Okay. <laughs> He's trying to build a legacy here. David has won 21 Emmys. Oh. He has 11 Guinness Book of World Records. He sold 33 million tickets, totaling $4 billion. Oh it's the most gosh. of any solo entertainer in the history of entertainment. Wow. So I wow. think it's worth wow. touchstoning a couple of these moments that led to that, because that's the most rarefied air, if you're number one. Television played a role in that that maybe previously, obviously, couldn't have played a role in Houdini. And I also would hope for you to tell me, comparatively, how big was Houdini in his day? Like, who would we compare him to? Is his legacy bigger than he was? Was he the biggest thing in the world? How big was Houdini? And then what role did this medium play in your success, television? Okay, Houdini, I think, was extremely uh, vital in the sense that he knew about publicity really well. Everything he did was based on publicity. He would always show up for, for everything. He'd be there on top of it. Was he the greatest magician ever? No, but he was probably the greatest publicist ever. He was a magician, he did fine, but what he did, find out he started escaping from things. And escaping from things was a very relatable thing. To escape, people could really go, wow, I wish I could get out of a jail. I wish I could get out of handcuffs. It's wish fulfillment. I don't actually wish I can trick you with a card, but God knows I'd love to get out of handcuffs someday. That's right, yeah, and you may need to, you know. But <laughs> yeah. the, the thing is that he found that avenues will captivate attention. When he produced flowers or an elephant, meaningless, nobody cared. Nobody wakes up in the morning and dreams of that. People do dream about escaping from things. So he really did that and it was very copied and was a great publicist. He was a P.T. Barnum publicist for sure. And I mean, he died on Halloween. Give me a break. He's gonna die, he's gonna die on Halloween. That's great publicity, right? <laughs> yeah, you know? pretty perfect. I think in my museum and also in the book, we talk about him a lot. And I think he discovered that thing. I think Thurston was a better magician. Keller was a better magician. I've done lots of escapes 
All the stuff that he didn't do, I did. I went over Niagara Falls in a raft. He wanted to do that. I escaped from an imploding building. What? Uh-huh. And it's at a time, remember, remember that's a time where everything was hidden. Except the straitjacket escape, he would escape in front of thousands of people on the street for free from a straitjacket upside down. That's an escape you can actually see. If you want to see a, my version of that, again, his is really great. But our version was, you can Google fires of passion. It was kind of making it very filmic and make it so they see every single detail. I was hanging from ropes that burn, for example. And one by one, by one the ropes would burn away. And is this I where you cut skip. your finger off? Is this no, it's a different, different. Okay. I knew it involved ropes. Okay. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> These are giant ropes. Fires of passion. Check it out. It's pretty good. It's very cinematic. So... Houdini lived in a time where the audience would be very patient. It wasn't an audience waiting to, what's the next piece of sugar going to come at us? And people would stare at a curtain with him escaping behind the curtain for an hour. Oh, wow. Really? That wouldn't work today, right? But we still remember the name Houdini, which is pretty amazing because of his ability to kind of capture the the iconic imagination of of people. And um, it's got to, you have to give him a lot of respect for that. Like, would we compare him to the Beatles, to, I mean, was he enormously in his, time. in his time? I think in his time, you remember his time was Chaplin time. Chaplin had been around, Sarah Bernhardt would be there. When he got a yeah. picture of Sarah Bernhardt, that was a big deal for him. But we still know him because of the mystery of it all, I think. I think that, that yeah. is the, the mystery of it, and the, the name is a good name, right? Even if he would have grown old, maybe, that d- diminishes how much we yeah. remember him. In yeah, some true. bizarre way, had he not died tragically. Well, that plays a part of it. I'd rather go for the old age thing myself. Yeah, 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 me too. I just want to quickly go through. So at 18, you have got the lead role in Chicago and The Magic Man. And then 19, you start headlining your own show down in Honolulu. Well, let's go back to that. The show I did where I sang and danced and acted, when Doug Henning had this giant show in New York, and it was answered by these producers who produced Grease on Broadway, did the show with me called The Magic Man in Chicago. I had about 12 songs at the opening of the eight month run. And by the end of the run, I had a half of a song. (laughs) 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 They gave all my songs to the other people who could actually sing. (laughs) That is not the direction I thought you were going with the story. That was wonderful. (laughs) I can't sing well, I did okay. But they kept giving the professional singers and actors other stuff. My magic was good, and the show ran, and I thought my career was going to be great. I thought, okay, I'm set. I'm a big star in Chicago. Great. I come to New York, eh, starved for a year. And I started doing industrial shows, corporate events, mm-hmm. as you would call them today. And they paid for my illusions, and they paid for to build all the, the props to tell the stories I wanted to tell at the time. And it was kind of an MGM musical world at the time. I would cut a girl in three pieces as a date with a magician. There was a series of movies at the time called That's Entertainment. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's Entertainment was this giant success and it was all the clips of the MGM musicals. Totally inspiring to me. So I did a date with a magician. I did the Keystone Cop number with an escape. I would float my assistants up in the air to American and Paris. I would do my salute to Gene Kelly. So it was all very kind of story-based magic that kind of had context because my idols weren't magicians. My idols were the, all the people that did everything else but magic. That's what got me discovered, I guess, by a guy named Joe Cates, Phoebe Cates' father. Oh, wow. Gave me my big break. He was producing specials for Johnny Cash specials and Robert Klein specials and circus specials. He put, he put me on TV, on ABC, 
And uh, Fred Silverman put me on the show, introducing the, all the fall season. And it was me and Hal Linden and Cindy Williams and the Kate Jackson, all the Charlie's Angels people. And I didn't know what to do with my hands. You know, I really was on camera. <laughs> and Donnie Marie would walk on there and they knew exactly what to do with their hands and their bodies. They knew exactly how to control the camera. And at the time, they'd look at a camera lens they would know when a camera was on close-up for them because the camera lens would move closer or farther. But at the time, they would know exactly how big their movement should be. You go, oh my God, these people are so talented. And I knew nothing. I was 19 years old. Again, it's a very mechanical format, more than people would guess. It was at the time. Yeah. Now it's whole nother thing. But I learned a lot. I learned a lot by failing. If you watch that special, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And they didn't know what to do with me. And I learned to direct really quick. I learned to light really quick because I didn't want to look stupid <laughs> for the next one. Well, and I'd imagine your illusions have to be filmed in a very specific manner and you're aware of that. Yeah, well, we developed lots of camera technology and that's why the Emmy Awards come from that. We really had a, a crew that won a lot of awards for their cinematography and their camera work and all that stuff because we cared so much. And um, I put my money into it. I didn't make any money from this stuff just to get it right. So it would last with something that was decent. Looking stupid is a really great lesson. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's a big motivator. And you're talking about how people are motivated on stuff. I got it. fear is a real, motivator. It's amazing. The fear of looking dumb or getting it wrong. And I've gotten it wrong a lot and I've learned a lot and I continue to learn every single day. Yeah. I say the path of a director is basically you, you go into it, understanding it. And then the only way to truly learn is to fuck yourself over in the edit, to get into the edit and go, Oh my God, I shot them against a wall. Oh my God. I didn't do a close. Oh my, that's when you that's really right. learn directing is when you, <laughs> when you can't solve the problem you created. Right, right, right. And you know that Mel Brooks says, shoot the clock, shoot the clock, <laughs> roll camera on the clock so you can cut away. Why cut away to the clock to get you out of trouble. It's yes, like, Oh my yeah. God. And for me, I spent lots of time in the editing room also to make sure, even though the magic itself has to be in one shot without cutting right. away and the shots have to move. We developed lots of stuff as far as making sure that the audience at home feels like they're in the theater. In the theater, you can move your head to the side. It's the old Polanski shot with Ruth Gordon where she's halfway off the screen and the cinematographer saying to Roman Polanski, well, she's, she's not centered, she's behind the wall. And he says, don't worry about it, just shoot it. And then at the screening, first screening, they play that scene in Rosemary's Baby and the whole audience cranes their head around kind of like that. And they yeah. say, oh, okay, and now I, now I see what you're talking about. So it's like thinking yeah. like that and like learning that, how do you make the magic work at home? Yeah, it's much harder than people would probably imagine. Of course, I know it coming from comedy. So if you have a written bit of material and you're doing stand-up, that has a certain expectation. But when you see improv, when you go to see improvisers take a suggestion, everyone feels the stakes of it. They feel the impending failure of it so that when it's, even if they landed at a seven, it feels like a 12 because you've broken the <laughs> tension it. of this eminent failure in front of you. And I have to imagine magic has the exact same appeal, but on television, you're removed from it. And so to, to recreate that feeling must be hard. You have to make up for that. You're totally right. Magic is a live medium in essence because people at home know you can do anything and today really anything. So yeah. how do you make them really believable and get invested in the reality of it? Well, you kind of show mistakes. You show ah. the mistakes. Yeah. And also just you kind of have live people there. It's a real interesting exercise. And we did a, a good job of it on TV. It communicated the idea. People really felt like they were there as best as you could. Certainly a live medium. There's nothing like it. Like your analogy with improv. Improv, certainly the stakes 
and a live theater, the skakes, you know that somebody could drop dead on stage any minute. Yeah. And, and, on, and on TV, well, guess what? We would probably leave it in if that happened. You know what I'm saying? Today, we'd leave it in. And I'm doing impossible things. So every effort, every chance to humanize it is better. To not look like the, the eyebrow raised perfect picture, to make it so it's human and show your flaws and show that you're like them makes the magic even stronger. Yeah, because I guess as a viewer on television, you actually go, oh my God, let's say you're in a you're in water and you're in a straitjacket. The wiser part of my brain goes, well, he doesn't die or it wouldn't be on television. They're not gonna air this guy dying, but when it's live, this guy might die. It's just a totally sure. different mindset. People do suspend their disbelief on TV. They really do. They do get invested, even though cerebrally, you do know that there is a positive conclusion usually, but in a movie, certainly you know You've seen people on TikTok, so you know that that actor made it out of the helicopter crash, but you're still invested in the movie, aren't you? You still go with it, you know, you suspect. Yeah, well, but I would argue that big element of why Game of Thrones was so successful is they killed this, our lead immediately. And then when they did that, they told us anything's possible in this show. It was so profound and it carried out through all the seasons. You go, I don't know who they'll kill. They'll kill Jon Snow. Yeah, that's possible. I just want to talk about one of your specials, which was the Statue of Liberty. And not so much about the, the illusion itself, but I kind of dug what I learned the impetus was. Like, what, the message you were actually trying to send, I think, is kind of cool. And, I, and that had blown over my head in the day. But we'll need to know what the illusion is to have that. He made the Statue of Liberty disappear. <laughs> In a nutshell. <laughs> Not to jump to the punchline, but... <laughs> no, to, to go backwards, what happened was I was doing all this story magic and theater-based magic, trying to make that work. as felt I was my contribution, making it, make it personal and make, give it a soul, a reason for being. And on one special, a pretty good special, I vanished an airplane. So I did all this story stuff and I vanished an airplane. And I, it was a good, really good piece of magic, but it had no reasons for being. And the next day, the vanishing airplane was viral before viral. People mm. went around the world, people were talking about this thing. Johnny Carson never booked me on the Johnny Carson show. He didn't like me for some reason, I don't know why, but he talked about that. He was like, oh my God, how? So it was like, it really was an amazing thing, the impact of the big idea. And I didn't expect it. And I was kind of mad about it. <laughs> I didn't like yeah. it. I said, you like that? I worked so hard on this other stuff and you yeah. like this, bi this big thing that had no personal investment in it. There was no soul to it. Most magic is that. Most magic is that you vanish somebody, did it. But to me, magic shouldn't be that. It should be much more than that. Anyway, that got ignored. I was, uh, I was taught a lesson that just having a piece of magic, if it's really strong and really big, would have an impact. And I said, I got to fix this somehow. And the next special, I want to do a big thing that had meaning, therefore the Statue of Liberty. My mother told me about the Statue of Liberty when I was a kid, when she was a kid, she came on the boat past the Statue of Liberty, oh, there's a statue over there, here's what it means, young lady. She's from Russia? From Israel. Oh. Father is from Russia. But the same, like, gotta leave, <laughs> life's gonna be bad here, there's yeah. gonna be problems, let's come to this place called America, where streets are actually paved with gold. They told, they really believed streets were gonna have gold on them. And mm -hmm. of course, they had cigarettes instead, and gum. <laughs> and uh, horse shit, probably. And some of that too. But anyway, she comes by in the boat, and they statually, oh my God, there it is, and the new life happens. And the new life includes something that didn't exist where she came from, which is this freedom stuff. So I 
went to Frank Capra. Frank Capra was one of my idols also. Uh Frank Capra, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, It's a Wonderful Life, all the movies we watch in Christmas and so forth. Well, and uniquely American kind of And he was that, really, really that. And I went to Frank Capra and I said, your company's called Liberty Films back in the day. I'm gonna vanish the Statue of Liberty. I said, will you help me? He said, yes, I will help you on one condition, that you fail. When you try, you will try and fail. Oh, wow. <laughs> and the point wow. is, yeah. And he says, the point is, liberty can't disappear. It's too strong. It cannot disappear. And I said, well, I don't think CBS will want me to do it, you know, spend time. <laughs> well, yeah, they can hire Dax to pull that trick off. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, what I wanted was to talk about my experience in a compelling way, my experience, my mom's experience, showing that. Liberty is a fragile thing, that if we can make it disappear, how we take it for granted. Imagine if we didn't have it. Imagine if the Statue of Liberty wasn't there. But it was more than that. It was like, imagine if our freedom didn't exist and how our our future of our kids uh, would change if we lived like some countries right now live. And so that was the point. The illusion was okay. I think the airplane was better, honestly. (laughs) But people really remembered that Statue of Liberty thing. They remembered it as an idea, probably because of that underlying subtext of it. And it was really flattering that shows like The Americans, fantastic show, great. We love it. It's incredible. Incredible. So they did a whole episode with the Statue of Liberty. The idea was that takes place, in fact, these two Russian spies in America during that time, during the 80s, during that time. And it's the family watching this, Russian spies and their kids watching uh, me vanishing the statue and talking about freedom. So they use that as a kind of iconic moment of that that time. That's flattering. Very flattering, yeah. Yeah. So it's cool. I have a technical question. So I know your techniques are well guarded as they should be. I know that you have some nickel inscribed disc that's going to the moon or is already on the moon with the revelations of how you did all this (gasps) stuff. So my question is, (laughs) Knowing, just to establish how important it is to you, how on earth do you have a crew of presumably 150 people to make the special that are getting privileged access? Three can keep a secret if two are dead. How on earth does that not get out of the bag? They all sign NDAs. You hope you have a relationship with them to uh, be part of this team that's creating this because I'm not a one-man band. Yeah, you wanna give them ownership so they wanna protect it as well, I'd imagine. That's a really good way of doing this. They feel part of that team. So 20 years later, 30 years later, they go, you know, I was part of that and we haven't talked. They take pride in not talking about it. But there's a couple assholes out there, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Guys down on their luck. (laughs) Yeah, so what do you do? What I do is, you know, I'll, I'll reveal a secret here today. On the internet, we have exposure videos that people are exposing my magic. And you can go look and how does David Copperfield do this? What you'll find, the top rated ones are the ones that I created. Mm. So is this like I heard recently that, I think it was Ray-Ban discovered that there was some billion dollar market of knockoff Ray-Bans and they had been fighting for years to try to conquer that. And eventually they just surrendered to it and said, you know what, it's going to happen. We should make the billion dollars and they're making the knockoffs. I mean, I could have some of the details of that wrong, but in general, that's... I didn't know that. And that's an interesting decision in the retail business. That's an interesting decision, but you have to really weigh how do you balance out how it hurts your brand. (laughs) You know, Yes, of course. But for me, I guess it is similar in a way. Before they do it, 
I mean, Houdini, go back to Houdini for a second. When people started copying him, so many people copied him doing handcuffs things. He came up with books of how to escape from handcuffs mm -hmm. to, try, to try to destroy uh, it. And kind of here's how I do it to kind of quash it down a bit. So I would imagine for me, it would be like, Okay, yeah, if you guys are gonna unveil this, I would like to be kind of at least in control of how it's unveiled. Like I'm gonna be violated, so let me at least come up with the best version of this thing I don't wanna do. My thing is a bit different because what you see on the internet is my explanations that aren't real. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, okay, so disinformation. 100%, and really well done. <laughs> Okay, okay, so another plausible way. And I take them down, David Copperfield takes down the fake stuff and then it comes back again and they redo it and uh, I was the culprit to begin with, so there you go. Oh, okay, okay. What's your favorite magic movie? My fingers are crossed that we have the same one because I think there's one of my top five movies of all time is a magic movie. Huh, there's been some really good, you know, Christopher Nolan, did research yeah. here for The Prestige. The Prestige. Yeah, it was really good. The Illusionist, I think, is really well done uh, with Edward Norton. There's been a lot of movies that I helped with. The Now You See Me movies, I was the co-producer of the second one. And the first one was inspired by one of my illusions. The uh, author came to my show and saw me transporting myself and someone to a deserted island or, you know, and said, okay, we can make a movie out of that idea. If magic is that, as opposed to sleight of hand, we can make a movie out of that. So he wrote, a, Ed Reichort is his name, and he saw my show. And I used to transport people, again, trying to push the envelope. I used to reunite people by transporting them to uh, other countries during my show. Oh, and, wow. make it and make it credible, believe it or not. That was the start of the Now You See Me movie. Stuff, Monica's so. about to explode. How? I don't know if you're checking in with her, like How? her body, uh, oh. her physical cues here, but she is literally Wait, on the verge you of exploding. Like your assistants or no, 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 audience. No, no. Me, no. Me a, yeah, you should go see it. You can look on YouTube. You can see Portal, an illusion called Portal. It's me and a young man go to a boy. Yeah, with proof and signatures and Polaroids and all that stuff. It was amazing live, but on TV it's not oh so bad, actually, yeah, portal. Oh, wow. This is crazy. So what you're telling us is you do have the technology to teleport, and you should go ahead and release that because I want to teleport. It would collapse every known industry we have. It's fine. Real estate, That's fine. fuel, transportation, we would get that and then the, the entire world economy would be gone. Why the fuck do or you need really to live good. in Manhattan if you can work in Manhattan, eat in Manhattan, walk around Manhattan, and then sleep in your house in the country? Manhattan real estate worth nothing. Tomorrow, boom. I had a script idea about a guy who discovered <laughs> teleporting and all these titans of industries conspired to kill him because it would ruin everything. <laughs> well, it's fake. <laughs> when I do <laughs> Let me live. Let me live. Wow. Oh, wow. But I'm not sure that's right. I'm working on stuff with very smart people that are, is real stuff that is based on making the future better. We'll see what happens. But I think mm. the job of that, the real win of that illusion is if some kid in the audience to watch me do that, and that motivates them to really take our atoms and be able to reform them. Mm -hmm. When you're watching The Prestige. Yeah, what is your favorite magic movie that you want yeah, to Yeah, The Prestige. Prestige. I think that is a masterpiece yeah. on so yeah. many levels. Cinematically, it's so gorgeous. When he goes in to visit Tesla and he Tesla. puts that light bulb in the ground. They, I mean, there's yeah. so much beauty in that. And then the 
darker side to me, the fascination I have is kind of the macabre aspect of magic. Of course, there's the dark arts and there's people trying to harness the powers of Satan to perform magic. Like I'm more interested in maybe the occult version of magic. The male character to me represents like what one could possibly do in pursuit of this thing. And I, I don't know, I, I just loved it. But I do wonder, so here's my bad example. I'm watching Outbreak. Well, I majored in primatology. So right away, I see this monkey leaving Africa, but it's got a prehensile tail. And I go, well, that can't be there. That's a capuchin. It's supposed to be in South America. And I can't even enjoy now the scene. So when, you, when you're watching The Prestige, are you able to enjoy it? Or are you so conscious of the sausage? Like what's happening? Huh. Well, I think being taken out of any piece of theater is definitely a thing. All of us were content creators. And for that content to really communicate and to really resonate with people, few things take people out, right? Joel Gray, I did the Mike Douglas show. This is a years and years ago. John Lennon did it one week and I did it the next week, believe it or not. I don't know why. I didn't know what I was doing when I was a kid. But Joel Gray, just after Cabaret was on the show and he was a gigantic star, won the Academy Award for Cabaret. And he's rehearsing and he said, um, he's watching the monitors, he's rehearsing and... He said, don't take that back shot of my head because I'm losing some hair back there. And it's going to be about that. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. going to be about yeah. that. Yeah, so, I agree. And the point is you have to get as much right as physically possible can do, whether it's on stage by rehearsing and doing it or the editing room. For me, that movie was just beautiful. Both those movies came out at the same time and both of them respected magic. They didn't make it hokey or cheesy. They both respected magic. So I love that. Christopher Nolan came here to do research to this museum. And a lot of things that you see in that movie are based on pictures that he shot with his camera and his research team did. And of course, we welcome this genius of a guy. He's amazing to the museum. And I think he got... He got it really right as far as the storytelling and and all that stuff. Of course, you take a sideways path to make the story go forward. You're not going to be exactly accurate for things. If you're accurate, you're going to be at the expense of what the audience experience is. I think he went for the supernatural thing. Yeah, as he does, yeah. yeah. As he does. And that as a person who's thinking logic, logic, logic to find mechanical and psychological things, that is a much harder path to get right as opposed to saying Mm -hmm. it's a supernatural thing, even though I think the movie is great. Although supernatural grounded in a theoretical science that, as you just said, perhaps isn't on the horizon. If we, I mean, ultimately, right, that's what Tesla's machine was doing is it was teleporting. That was his ultimate illusion, right? Spoiler alert. We're going to find out, you know, we're going to find out. But I think that we are in a world of taking possibilities that a magician could do or a filmmaker can do. Anybody that's creating illusions, illusion in the cinema or illusion on stage with a magic show, and hopefully it becomes real in the distant future, in the not too distant future. A magician, George Melies, we talked about him before, did a trip to the moon. We saw a, a rocket land on the moon. Less than 70 years later, we actually landed on the moon. Mm -hmm. So the time between dreaming and reality is getting shorter and shorter. I mean, Elon Musk is taking rockets and landing them straight down on a pad. Holy shit. That's bonkers. That's really, really amazing. Going into a Tesla, having just sensing what's around you and all that stuff. It's not quite there yet. We can't really be hands-free yet totally. It's getting close, really close. And all the scary robot stuff. I've got a robot in my show that's pretty amazing. Oh, really? But all the robots were watching the Boston Dynamics and all that, all that mm-hmm. stuff that's kind of a little bit kind of scary. 
Oh God, yeah. That, that, there's just like a torso with Ugh. legs. Ugh. But <laughs> if it's if it's used correctly and monitored, so it's not used incorrectly, it's gonna change our world. We're watching things that are amazing right now. I'm really inspired. Stay tuned for more armchair expert if you dare. We are supported by Intuit, the technology platform that builds your financial confidence. There's some things that school doesn't really teach you, like how to handle the financial world. I mean, look, I did 16 years of school and I didn't have a single class on accruing debt or a hole that that puts you Yeah, on. they don't teach you that. No effort made whatsoever. If you want more financial knowledge, now is a great time to learn with Intuit for Education program. It has free, easy-to-use resources like getting a car loan with Credit Karma simulations, understanding taxes with TurboTax lessons, and even learning to run a business with QuickBooks simulations. Check out Intuit's free resources today at intuit.com slash education. Intuit, that's I-N-T-U-I-T dot com slash education. We are supported by Sleep Number. Oh, mattresses can be a pretty big purchase. It's kind of like a home. You and your partner have to shop around for one that you'll both love that's comfortable and suited to your preferences. Well, I'm about to make your lives a whole lot easier. Instead of hopping around from store to store, just check out Sleep Number Smart Beds. They're designed for you and your partner's ever-evolving sleep needs. When you see it, you'll know it's the one. I mean, this just changed the lives of my bride and I. The fact that we didn't have to compromise on the firmness of the mattress and the fact that it can evolve as we evolve is incredible. Sleep Number is great because it's all about what you need. You can adjust the firmness to your ideal settings on each side, perfect for couples. The smart beds respond and adjust to your movements throughout the night to help you sleep better. My Sleep Number is an 85. Whether you need something with more support or something to help quiet the snores, Sleep Number has you covered. So sleep better together with a Sleep Number smart bed. It's the only bed that lets you make each side firmer or softer whenever you like your Sleep Number setting. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We are supported by Men's Warehouse. When you wear a tailored men's warehouse outfit, it makes you feel confident, like you can do anything. Whether it's a snappy suit that makes you want to dance at a wedding like no one is watching, or a smart casual outfit that gives you the confidence to nail a job interview. Yep, you should give Men's Warehouse a shot, and here's why. Men's Warehouse is the only nationwide men's clothing store that has a tailor in every store to fit your suit, shirt, jeans, etc. to your bod. Men's Warehouse features clothes from the best brands in the fashion world like Vera Wang, Kenneth Cole, and Calvin Klein. Men's Warehouse isn't just suits. They have jeans, t-shirts, shoes, hats, and even underwear. The tailoring is game-changing. It really makes a huge difference in people's outfits if it's tailored to your body. You could have a billion dollar suit and if it doesn't fit it looks terrible yeah agreed yeah it's key men's warehouse is everywhere with 600 plus locations nationwide so if you need one and you will there's one near you feel like you can do anything in an outfit from men's warehouse visit your men's warehouse store or click or tap to shop online Is there anyone you watch as a magician and you're amazed? You have moments of it. There's moments. And then your brain starts going. And then, you know, if you can get that one moment, even for 10 seconds, it was a, 
coin trick that a, a guy did where a coin appeared in my hand. And for that one moment, it was like, oh my God. And then of course my brain did the horrible thing of destroying that thing. But that moment of wonder is a really important moment. And that's what I do as my job is to do that with people, to give them that kind of, that reason to live for that one moment to realize there's something great out there. Einstein talks about it, how if you can't be amazed at something, you might as well be dead. It's like that. I'm saying all these quotes very badly, but but, <laughs> but it's it's the importance, the importance of dreaming and the importance of future reality that's really something that is beyond what we know right now is very, very important. I agree. Okay, my last question has the potential to be a depressing one, but I'm going to ask it nevertheless. You've written this book, The History of Magic. I think you have great, great passion and true love for the history of it, the people that have progressed it. And I think you've brought, obviously, to minimally 33 million ticket buyers the thing you just described, which is like, is there more to this world than I know? And that's so thrilling. It's basically you're giving them optimism. Boy, there might be more to this world than I know. As I've had my own experience in life, and I'm looking at your museum, I am curious if your sense of nostalgia in recreating all these things is at all because the funnest part of this ride was the boy dreaming of this ride. No, I think that there is obviously more to life than we know, there is. We're discovering this every day. I salute all these men and women, amazing women magicians, Adelaide Herman, people that really inspired other women to do things that they're not supposed to do in quotes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's amazing women magicians today, which are really inspiring to me. I really focus my time on taking all this knowledge, these giants on whose shoulders I stand upon and figure out what do we do to inspire people to really show that future in a unique way so they can really move us forward. And magic has that power to prototype humanity's future, to kind of do it for real, except for one little part, which is the illusion part that I have to do. And then that hopefully will inspire people to to go forward. This museum will be endowed by me at the end of the day. You know, I'm working hard to save all my money to keep this alive and to have it as a living, breathing thing after my time is gone. But hopefully the real message is not to make people go, wow, it's to make people go, wow, what if? What if this could be real? What if we can make that happen? As da Vinci did, as Melies did, as all these people who, who loved magic did. And so in my humble way, I'm trying to find a way to take this ability to dream and to think about possibilities as Disney did. A lot of things that Disney kind of brought forth to look towards the future and that have now become real. And I think magic can do that. And the world I live in, this art that I live in, can accomplish that. And that's what I'm working on. Okay, I guess my positive spin on it would be this. I've been working now consistently for 20 years. The apex of the experience was while I was at the Groundlings Theater in L.A., and there really wasn't going to be an outcome to it. I, I wasn't getting paid, but people weren't recognizing me. That pursuit at that time, the pursuit that that was the thing that was going to take me to the place, the reason... It's worth pointing out, and you might not agree on this, and this would be fine, but I guess my message would be, if you're listening and you're young and you have a beautiful goal, please know that this ride is the sweet spot and it's not about the goal. Is that true for you? Yes. I mean, we do say that, enjoy the ride, enjoy the journey. For me, it was like, it wasn't, the journey wasn't that much fun. It's like the fun was the result of each step. 
Okay. In improv and in theater, the interaction with talented people is a joy there. You're getting so much feeling from interacting with people who are as good as you and better than you, right? You're learning and you're growing. In my world, it's not like that. In my world, I'm having to solve problems. Though I'm coming up against walls each time. So the, yeah. joy mo- the joy moment is when I finally get it right and the audience goes, yeah, that's pretty good. That's my joy moment. So it's a process of torture and then f- finally getting it right. And you okay. And then you think, all right, next time I do this, it's gonna be easy because it was so hard the last time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that's wrong because the next time it's just as hard and you keep doing it, but there is the joy of the next thing. So I think the analogy, the differences in theater and improv, you're getting the, the joy of the interaction of the duet. I think my analogy with you is making a movie. Well, I was just going to say that, but I am of the opinion that you will never control the outcome of the movie. So it should be about the experience of making the movie because I've had movies that came out and tripled what they cost and I've had come out and just be stagnant. And so what I have to do while making is like, oh, no, I love making movies. I'm not doing this for the result on Friday. And it doesn't sound like though when you're making these elaborate illusions that it's such, it's a joyful experience. And maybe because it's more solitary or something. Not solitary, I'm working with people and we hit our head against the wall and it's, you go home really upset, but then finally it works. <laughs> finally yeah. you get it to work. That joy has got to cover up all the other stuff. Yeah. In movies though, when you make a movie, the sun's going down, you're gonna lose your light. Yeah. Oh my God. And then did you get the shot? Oh my God, and you go to bed at night and you're, I don't know how you get a joy. Certain directors, I think J.J. Abrams told me that, sorry, dropping names, it's a joy for him to shoot and stuff. Somehow he's able to handle it. When I'm doing a TV special, I was in China, in the middle of the streets in China, and we were shooting a scene with a, an old man who crashes his bicycle. Bicycle's wrecked, and I've got to magically restore the bicycle. So it's me and this old man, this little young boy in the scene. And behind the barriers is 10,000 people watching us because because there's movie lights. They've never seen this. This is many years ago. And they're showing up, I mean, climbing on top of each other in the trees, watching us shoot this solitary (laughs) scene. And it's a night scene. And I'm looking at the clock and there's not enough time to shoot it. There's not enough time. And I was co-director of the show. And this older director said, what are you worried about? Why are you like so nervous? And he says, well, but the sun's gonna come up. We haven't got the shot. We're losing our light. The camera's moving the thing. Where the lights are gonna work, it's gonna ruin the illusion. He says, you're in China. You wrote this, this is your dream. You've got a a staff of a hundred people who are paying you to do this. You should be enjoying this. He was right, but I couldn't understand it. I didn't, I didn't understand it. You obviously can understand it. I haven't figured it out. Well, let me just say, I think my particular kink is I actually like solving problems. That's what I love. I love the challenge of, fuck, we're losing the light here. Oh, the sun was supposed to be on this side of the street, so now we got to shoot on this side. We don't have a permit for that. Like, that's actually what I love. Can I take this seemingly impossible situation and execute? And then when I do the burst of self-esteem that I have played my hand the best I can is the joy that I get. Now, I would say as a writer, it's more that. I sit in a fucking hotel room. I'm lonely. I'm miserable. It's impossible to crack the third act. And then it's finally done and that's it. When it's done, I'm happy, but not during the writing. Mm -hmm. But you're saying on the street when you're solving the problem, look, I should know that I'm going to solve it because I eventually do solve it. I should know that, right? But in the process, not being able to solve it, 
I'm not capable of thinking back saying it will get solved because my history is of solving. I think maybe this is the one time where I'm not going to solve it. And I've got this hundred people, 200 people there waiting to shoot this thing and I can't solve this thing. So you'll have to teach well, me. I that. like that. That means you're that. not arrogant. Well, but it, you already said too, you find fear to be a great motivator. So if you've identified it, then I, I would not argue you should eradicate that from your process. But I have the benefit of having journaled for the last 17 years. So when I'm about to start something three days out, I'm like, they hired the wrong person. I'm incompetent. How the fuck did I get myself in this position? But then I read day one of filming of everything, whether I'm acting, whether I'm directing. The day was perfect. Like I can just go back and look, <laughs> oh, I have a pattern. I will learn from you. <laughs> no, I think it's really important for people coming up in any field to be like, the very best is still scared and not all that confident. Like that's important because people feel like, oh, if I'm here, I should feel like this. And you don't, you still have insecurity. I think that's great. Well, it's good to know that. And a positive note, it does finally work. It yeah. does. I mean, I'm proof it does work. It does, but it's not easy. And I'm really not alone in this. There's a lot of great directors who are storied, famous people that go to their room after shooting, putting in terms that you live in, and they go to their room crying every night, and they've got to- Oh, Coppola. Yeah, mate, I'm sure you've watched Hearts of Darkness. Like, to know that he was coming home after these scenes in Apocalypse Now and saying, I don't know what movie I'm making <laughs> is encouraging, weirdly. Francis did my Broadway show. Francis and I did a Broadway show together. And Coppola, Spielberg, <laughs> used to talk to these guys, and they go, it's like all the same. It's the same thing. But at the end of the day, it's worth it. It is worth it. And um, you have to find the strength somewhere. And uh, for me, again, the difference is I'm starting with a blank, real, truly a blank page, unless I copy what everybody else has done. And that's no fun. Well, David, this has been uh, incredibly interesting. Monica's yes. going to have to take a couple cool down laps uh, <laughs> to get her heart rate back under 140. I want to come see your show. I can't wait. It's fine. I'm doing magic in a really different way. It's not card tricks and girls coming out of boxes. It's dinosaurs and oh, spaceships and, and family and aliens. And uh, it's really tra trying to change the language of magic. So it's not what you expect at all. Wait, I have a question about the bringing the person to Hawaii. So does that, <laughs> does that person think he went to Hawaii? Like, if that's a real life person walking around now, does he say to his wife, like, yeah, like, <laughs> he, can't, he can't answer that. I will answer one part. People that you bring up from the audience usually are totally amazed by something. Usually are totally amazed. Certain times I've broken the rule and they've been partially amazed mm -hmm. to get an effect for the audience. So they kind of learn something on stage, but still would go home with amazement. You know what yeah. I'm saying? They'll, they'll know part of it, but they'll still be able to tell their friends, I have no idea how he did that. So I do take a lot of pride in making sure that when they become part of the show in a way that they still have amazement and they still have a value of the experience. So cool. Oh, this was, uh, this was really interesting. So for anyone that is interested, I can't imagine someone more qualified to write the history of magic. David Copperfield's History of Magic is a book you should buy read and tell your friends about. So grateful to have you on. It was great. We are definitely going to come see you in Vegas. Yeah. I'm going to say that this is something we will, you want. we will do. And I would love to snoop around this museum. And you will. I'll get a tour. And I love both your work, just so you know. I did do my uh, my research. Um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, the book is an amazingly valuable 
Christmas gift, I must tell you. It's a beautiful book, and it's really, really a great thing on your coffee table that you can last for generations. They're really great for that. And do you think, what would be the youngest age who could maybe comprehend it? Is that a tough question? The whole thing is just a beautiful book showing beautiful pictures, beautiful stories of people that did famous and infamous things from Houdini to Keller to Thurston to Alexander to David Kotkin from A Touch in New Jersey, that's me. Uh -huh. uh, Davina, <laughs> the boy magician. And this is a beautiful coffee table book. It's fun to read in little sections. It's not like a big off-putting thing. It's not homework, it's fun. And the stories are really accessible and it's just a great thing to have, yeah. Awesome, David Whoa. Copperfield's History of Magic. David, thanks so much for being on the show. And uh, you'll see us in the audience. Let me know. Let me okay. Know. Thank you. Right. <laughs> Will do. All right. Thanks Bye, so much. Bye. Thank you. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. Uh, this is our first unedited fact check. Good. Oh, my gosh. Down to the wire. No safety net. So scary. Well. What if people found out that we were only clever like one minute out of every 40 it might happen. Okay. It's okay. If that happens, I will edit it still. <laughs> Let's start by saying I've really missed doing fact checks because we haven't done one for a minute. I know. We've been out of town. On the vacation of our life. Well, my, I'm going to speak for me. Vacation of my life. We had so much fun. There were so many variables. There were so many events. Generally, when we vacation, uh, which is lovely, we go to a house and we sit there, yeah. which is great. We play cards. We go swimming. This one was action-packed. This it was, was soup to nuts, a barn burner of activity. We were in Austin uh -huh. for the F1 race. <laughs> Man. Very limited edition, very exclusive. And there were events. Boom, boom. Got to be here at this time. Got to be there at that time. And just the notion that we bookended the trip was Salt Lake. Salt Lake out in Driftwood. Yeah. We got off the airplane. We went to the rental houses, straight to Salt Lake. First meal in Austin. Your favorite restaurant there. Oh. And it's not, I'm not, look, I'm not picking any barbecue fights. I'm not saying it's the best barbecue in Texas, but I'm saying when you add up the atmosphere, the vibe, the smoke pit right in front of you, the, all that stuff together, it's my favorite restaurant. It's really fun. We had so much fun there. And it's a great place to be with 23 people, nine of them kids, because chaos is welcomed. <laughs> That's true. They handled us really well. In fact, the whole city handled us really well, except... Well, okay. Let's pin... Do you want to put a pin in our grievance? Okay. Okay. We'll keep it positive at the beginning Okay. Here. Okay. So, first day... So, first day we land, you know, we go to Salt Lake. Fantastic. Next day, let's go to Barton Springs. Favorite place to swim. Right in town. If you've not been, it's incredible. Big grassy slopes into like a, I don't know, half mile long pool. And it's not even a pool. It's a, the sides are cement, but the bottom's a river. It's a creek. Yeah. Go there. It's closed for cleaning. And yeah, we've that got was a big oops. And we got 23 people showing up. Mm -hmm. So think on your feet, go and swim on the other side uh, where the dogs are welcome. The riffraff, the um, misfits. Jess called it acid springs. <laughs> and I think that was <laughs> That's a great, accurate. Yeah. A lot of people were um, having experiences down there, which yep. is great. <laughs> The whole thing was great because uh, my oldest daughter, when we walked to the car, she was like, I kind of fe feel like I was in um, fight or flight for that last two hours. And I said, well, good. That, that's an appropriate response to that many people that are doing that many weird things mm -hmm. that you've never seen before. It's like, that, that's not a wrong response. It's like, who who's... Who's legitimate crazy and who's just like eclectic and colorful? We were joking that because Char Charlie was there too. And we were saying he was in f fight or fight. 
the <laughs> fight whole or time. fight mode. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was so much pressure on Eric because listen, some guys were swimming in their jeans. This one dude, God bless him. I, I hope he finds his way back to recovery. But he yeah. came up to us and he was saying he is a friend of Bill, meaning he's also sober. And then, but I could see immediately this guy is fucking pissed. Out of his mind, yes. <laughs> yeah, out of his mind, high. And so I'm nice and kind and blah, blah, blah. And then he pulls Aaron to a side. He knows him and he says, you know, how do you feel about weed and pills in, in AA? And he's got a tremendous amount of weed and pills. Again, I'm the last person to be judgmental of this. I just don't really want to interact with someone who's yes. pretending they're sober when they're fucking to the gills. And really won't stop talking to us. Won't stop. This is kind of a funny story, actually. So I was, I would say, very, very generous and nice to him f about five interactions. But I could tell our whole day was going to be talking to this guy, yeah. and it was so scatterbrained. He was, you know, he's got a five-picture deal at Amazon. He <laughs> oh, yeah. inherited a quadrillion-dollar car collection. He, you know, just one oh, thing after man. another. And finally, I said to him, really nice. I'm like, brother, it was great meeting you, but I flew here to hang out with my family and my friends. So have a good one. You know, it was very, I was very nice. Then he came back. Oh, yeah. So sorry. You know, I, you know, after that, then a third, and I said, finally I said, brother, I'm not hanging out with you. I'm hanging out with my friends. And then, then it flipped. So then he went over to Aaron and he said, this guy's a fucking asshole. He thinks he's too famous. Mm -hmm. Well, I've been in front of the camera and behind the camera <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I got a podcast. <laughs> That's not the punchline. He then spent the rest of the two hours mm -hmm. we were there going up to groups of people Pointing over at us, explaining to them Dak Shepard was around yep. and that he's a fucking asshole. <laughs> and then he swam across the creek, went to the other bank of the river, and we just watched him. He was just going through every group mm. of people. We'd see him point over at us for a minute, and we knew what was coming. So he, I think he was trying to, like, rally maybe up. You know, some kind of a, a rabble a against me. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Just, yeah, put together a troop and take us on. Yeah, and unfortunately, he was like one of the least, God, what's the word? Because I can't cut anything That's out. That's right. You don't want to offend anyone here. <laughs> um, you know, hair-raising okay. characters. Sure, sure, sure. He was, yeah. What uh, would you give him out of 10 for fight or flight? I would give him, I would give him a three because I wasn't, I wasn't actually scared of him. Right. There were, there were some people there that I was, I was scared. nervous. Mm -hmm. um, what's yeah. going to happen right one now? One guy was swinging a golf club in, yes. uh, randomly. Is that one of your guys? Yes. Yeah. And that, he was particularly strange because he seemed kind of. Athletic? No. Well, well, <laughs> I don't want to take away his. Athleticism. I don't want, yeah, yeah. Maybe he was an ex golfer, but he seemed um, at face value normal. Yeah. Not on drugs. Right. But then he clearly was on drugs mm -hmm. by the way he was swinging that golf club. And I was like, oh, okay, this is making me nervous because what, where's that aggression going to go? Well, it was going to that golf ball. Luckily. Yeah, but, but what if he decided we were the golf ball? Well, that's true. That's true. I will say, though, all in all, it had a f similar vibe of many of the street corners I would be on in Detroit when I lived there. Yeah, so you, you but, have some experience. Well, but I will say it was it was way more peaceful. So it was like, yeah, people were blown out, man. Some people were having some like 60s level acid trips yes. where they were seeing huge insects and stuff. One guy was just like kind of touching his nose repeatedly, I sure. think to make sure it was like still there. Of course. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, you can get nervous that it went away. Anyways, the long story short, it was actually a great time. Uh, all those little speed bumps. Uh, 
taken into consideration. Like uh, the girls were going down the little the little waterfall that mm-hmm. was coming off the dam, and they were getting real adventurous, and it was really fun. We left. We go to Guero's. That's a party. Yeah, best cheese dip. I mm. love a cheese dip. As Queso. soon as we landed, well, okay, I'm gonna <laughs> oh I'm gonna call it a cheese dip. Okay, because I don't know that it's fair to the people of Mexico to call it queso because it's Tex-Mex. Sure. Obviously. I don't even know if they do queso in Mexico. No, they do, but it's like a hard, it's like almost this like hardish cheese. Like the cheese on top gets hard. Like a French onion soup. Delish. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, But Tex-Mex, which is what I also grew up on. Yeah. I love Mm. the cheese dip. Yeah. It's fantastic. So good time there. Uh, go home, blah, 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 next day. Now we're going to go to Barton Springs proper. And here's where the grievances start. Mm. <laughs> so if you don't like to hear people complain, you might want to skip ahead uh, 30 seconds No, you time. need to hear this, okay. guys. I, I want to preface this by saying it's literally my favorite place to swim on planet Earth. And I'm a big swimmer. And when I go places, I always search out local swim holes. I mean, this is my spot. You it's do. it's my is- mecca. I look forward to it so much. Yeah. And I've been there 40, 50 times and had the best time always. Okay, we go. Yeah. Again, 23 people. 23 people. Let's own our, you know. Well, no, it's a huge, (laughs) huge place. Like, this is the place to go with 23 people. Yes, absolutely. It's a huge grassy knoll. Uh, but you know, it's kind of hard to get in. Like there's, um, you have to pay, but the, those machines weren't working all that Not well. Right, yeah. So that was kind of hard. <laughs> and we all figured that out finally. And they told us to put masks on as we walked in, which was really interesting because everyone else walking in didn't have a mask and everyone walking out didn't have a mask and not one human being there had a mask, but it was very important that all 23 of us find a mask. And they said, you can take it off when you cross into the grass, which was six feet. Right. So we're like, okay, that was a little un-Barton Springs from my memory. Like, everyone's got to dig out. And it took a minute to get nine kids' masks and shit. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Go so ahead. then we go. We go. We get we're there. We shake that off. We're shaking we're that shaking off. We're shaking it off. It's great. Putting out our towels, getting out our coolers, um, Get and uh, you guys, some of the guys go down. They start getting wet. Yeah, get wet. Get it wet. Get it wet. And we're there for, I would say... Six minutes. Oh, it, it happened that because I re- immediately. Yep, yeah, news reached me probably forty-five minutes later because I had swam to the far end. Yeah. Okay, so six minutes in. Six minutes in. Um, the what I now know was the head guard. Wait, you, how do you now know that? Oh, because she told. Okay, you don't know some of this. Then. Oh, okay. Okay, so this woman yeah. comes up. She's in charge. She has an English accent. She does. Okay, and she said. Is that alcohol? And she looked at Erica, who had a beer, but she hadn't drank it yet. Mm-hmm. It was okay. out. Okay. And she was like, oh, yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Being very forthcoming. Sure. Nothing to hide. No. And she said, okay, we don't, we have a very strict policy. We don't allow alcohol. Uh, we don't allow food. And if I see it, you got to go. So I'll give you guys a few minutes to pack up. <laughs> and no, we but all, mind you, it's really important to say nothing was opened, correct? Right. Uh-oh, are we fibbing? Well- The beer was open? I don't know because I don't really know that much about the beer. I think maybe the beer was open, but wasn't drank. And then there was wine that was not open that she saw. Okay. 
in a friend's bag. Uh-huh. She said, and I see your wine. I already saw it. You got to go. Okay. Got to go. And we were like, what? Well, everyone was quickly like, oh my God, so sorry. Yes. That makes sense. We'll just go we put it in the car. We'll throw it away. We don't need this. But, and, and and no, already saw it. Already saw it. If I saw it, you got to go. Yep. And we were like, well, is there anything we can do? We just got here. We have all these kids. You know, we, we don't need this stuff. Nope, nope, nope. I could lose my job. Uh-huh. And then, oh, oh, okay. So then Erica was like, well, can I just go? Then? Right. Because, I'm the one with the beer. Yes. And then and then that's when she saw Laura's and she said, oh, I saw yours too. And then they were like, well, we'll just go. And she said, okay, that's fine. And then- I also had an open bag of Cheez-Its, so I was oh, a culprit as well. Sure, sure. A mouse with cheese. <laughs> I can't put too fine a point on that. This, you're sitting on a f- grass football yes. field. Yes. Okay, just. And there's no, it. you know, we were we were really. It's uh, clearly a picnic area, but go ahead. Oh, yeah. And we were really picking this apart because I, we were like, why, how, how can you not allow food at a place like this? Like. Unless they had their own food right. service. That would make sense. Absolutely. No outside food. Got to buy the food here. Got would to. love to. But if you're taking children exactly. to a public pool for the day, what, you want are them you kidding? To st- oh, we have to have Jess come on at some point and do his impression of her because uh-huh. it was so <laughs> amazing. He kept saying, yeah, kids starve here. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so so we thought, okay, you know, we'll let her cool off. Mm-hmm. We'll pack up. We'll go. I, I went with them. And- and we'll try to convince them, her, again, when right. on our way out. Yeah. So we, we go up. We see another p- woman. Mm, professor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and we said, you know, hi. And she, she knew immediately what was going to happen. She kind of rolled her eyes, not at us. Right, okay. And she said, she said yeah, you know, that's the head guard. Mm, um, okay. she, she's really strict. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, nothing was really open. Can we just throw it away or put it in the car? And she said, well, that should be fine. Just go talk to her. Oh, boy. Yep. Okay. I go back up to her. You know, we're so sorry. We did not know. She said it was on all the signs, which it was on the sign of the machine that was impossible to use. So obviously <laughs> no one is reading that machine because everyone's too busy trying to mm. make the machine work. Then, well, I also want to add, you know, it smells like weed everywhere. People are smoking people weed. People are also Pe- nude. Yeah, people are nude. People are drinking. Like, there's a lot going on, which, by the way, awesome. Well, they shouldn't be drinking. They should have been. She should have saw it. Well, that that'll get into my... Okay. I have a chapter two of this. Okay. Okay. So then, yeah. So, and she was just not budging. She just kept saying, I'll lose my job. I already saw it. Yeah. Already saw it. Yeah. And then, um, so we left. Mm. So we had to leave. We went into downtown Austin, walked around a bit, went to a jewelry store. I almost bought really expensive earrings, but I didn't. Oh, right, right. That's the take You shook away. it off. You shook it off. Uh-huh. So so now I'm left there. I yep. find this out. Oh, my God, they booted them. I'm like, oh, that's so weird. I, that's not the people I remember. I now get to our encampment, and um, there are two people now just stationed, yep. staring at us. Yes. And this is going on for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And finally, I'm like, this is bullshit. Yeah. I go up to them and I said, listen, you cannot stand here and stare at my group the entire time we're here. I love this place. It's my favorite. You're making this a very unfortunate experience for all of us. If you're going to 
patrol, at least go make it seem equal. Exactly. I don't know what you're talking about. We're not posted up here. And I go, well, you've been standing here staring at us for 15 minutes. What, what would you call that? I'm just doing my job. I said, oh, your job is to single out a group. And then it escalated. Yeah, right? sure, sure. And then, uh, yeah, this uh, Bozo James was his name. So he he bounces. They bounce finally. Like it was, it, thank God. It was like, obviously is uncomfortable for all three of us. They 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 were like, we're not going anywhere. I go, all right. And I left and then they did leave. They left. And then okay. they, they didn't come back. So I kind of thought, okay, good. We push back a bit. They know like, stop fucking with us. Yeah, leave us alone. <laughs> and then, oh my God. Cut to a plain clothes detective now. Oh. This 19 year old. <gasps> she was in, she was a, a spy? Yeah, she was undercover. Oh, my God. All of a sudden, there's just this plainclothes gal, um, 19, I would come to find out, leaning next to my backpack (gasps) out of nowhere. I'm like, who's this person? And she goes, you have broken glass and blood all over this place. (laughs) And I go, what are you talking about? You have broken glass and blood right here at your bag. (laughs) I go, I... Broken glass and blood. I look, she's (laughs) spying deep into my backpack where she sees a jar of jam that I have in my backpack because I have fucking kids and I have food in case we need to bang out a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. (laughs) I go, that is jelly. Nothing's broken. She's like, you gotta, you gotta throw all that away. You gotta take that to the car. And then she starts repeating, this is a federally protected area. This is a federally protected area. On the ninth time she said it, I said, listen, I heard you. It is federally protected. You don't need to repeat that again. Yeah. She goes, you're going to give me, a 19-year-old, a bunch of attitude when I'm doing my job? And (sighs) I was like, this is madness. I started wondering, like, did they have some team meeting yeah. prior to the weekend going like, gang, Formula One's in town. You know, those people are crazy. Mm. We got to run a tight ship or we're going to lose complete control of this place. So she's now going absolutely apoplectic. She has lost her mind entirely. Oh. She can barely talk when she keeps repeating federally protected area. Federally. And I'm like, you know what? And now everyone in the group's like, well, just leave. I'm like, no one's leaving. I'm taking this food out to, I'm going to take this fucking jam out to my car, Mm. put it in there, and we're going to continue to swim because it's been a big hurdle to get in there. Yeah. So I'm taking it out, and on the walk, she says federally protected like (laughs) seven more times. I I can't, I mean, wow, what an experience. Get to the, and then she decides on the walk, she's throwing me out. Mm. You got, actually, you got to go. Oh, wow. Okay. And when we get to the front of it, there's this taller dude that worked there that I had already interacted with on my swim, like Good Time Charlie. Like I was chatting him up and he was friendly. Yeah. And she's like, I'm taking them. He's out of here. And he goes, oh, what happened? He has food. Okay. Was they, they were eating food? No, he had, but he has it. And I go, I go, hey, brother, yeah, I had some jam in my backpack, but I'm just going to throw it in the car and then come back. He goes, yeah, totally. That's cool. Well, that made her, uh, oh, of course. Her now she got, got un- undermined in front of me. Uh-huh. I, I got to tell you, I, I was like, I've never seen anything like this. Is this the thing? I know it's, that person's not even a millennial at this point, but like no. the, the level, we can't do any of that? No, 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 oh, we can, but the, I don't think that can be because of 
her age. Like, I felt like she was saying you, like, I felt like I was in one of those college campus things where she's like, you're triggering me. And in fact, when I stepped towards the tall dude to tell him I was going to take the food out, I stepped towards her. She jumped back. She said, sir, don't you come, don't you come near me. And I was like, oh my God, she's pretending I'm assaulting her. Oh, Jesus. Oh, is it maddening? I go through the food in the car. I come back. She's there. I walk back in, and now the whole group's leaving. I've lost it, but no one wants to deal with this anymore. So our whole group is packed up, and I'm like, I'm still gonna go for a swim because I love it there. Okay, so me, Charlie. (laughs) Yeah, well, now I'm in a for real power struggle, clearly, and I, you know, I regrettably and embarrassingly am the perfect person to get in one of those struggles with. I would have stayed there the entire day and talked to them if I could have, because I just couldn't surrender this insane policy. So anyways, we swam for another 10 minutes and then we left. And then I did stop on the way out and I said to her, hey, I was curious, is, is this area federally protected? Oh my God. <laughs> and she goes, yes, it's federally protected. And I go, it's federally protected. And she goes, it's on the sign over there. And I said, that it's federally protected. And I said then, Uh-oh. I must've said federally protected. Oh, wow. 20 times. I just wanted to experience what I had experienced. It reminded me a lot of these um, sale phone calls. I've told you about them on Stern where they call people in the South because their theory is people in the South will talk to you on the phone forever by just saying hello. So they're like, they just go, hey, hey. They call a stranger, hey. And this woman answers, hi. Hey, how you doing? Oh, good, good, good. So you're doing good? Yeah, good, good. That's great. So you're doing good. And this can go on forever. So at any rate, I was kind of doing that. And then finally, <laughs> I said, well, that's well, great. It's federally protected. Thank you. And then I split. But uh, yeah, what a, what a bummer of a trip to Barton Springs. It was rough. I will say when it was happening, uh, the first iteration of that, that my, my part, I said out loud, I'm just, just don't go down there. Don't tell Dax what happened. I don't <laughs> want this to become a thing. He's going to get really upset. <laughs> It's going to become a thing, so just let's it, just not. I'm glad he wasn't up here. Then, then part two. Yeah. Yeah, it was meant to be. Yeah, I let him, you know, that one where they were denying staring at us for 15 minutes, that one I lost my it's goal. It's so I mean, you think I'm fucking absolutely stupid? Is that what you think? Yeah. That oh. I don't recognize we're the only people that you are posted up in front of? Okay, fuck that. So that we... We just said, to hell with that. We're yep. going to wipe that clean from our slate. That was Friday. Yeah. Saturday was qualifying. Mm-hmm. Went to qualifying. It was so much fun. And then Sunday. Big race day. The big race. And Monty had a great time. It was so fun. We got to stay in the Red Bull lounge. Yeah. Which yeah. was so nice. I felt guilty. Why? Because we were in the Red Bull lounge and I was wearing a McLaren Oh, you know, I was wearing right. a Danny shirt. I was I was very proud to wear a Danny shirt, but I also felt a little like, oh, they're being really nice, and yeah, and I'm obviously betraying them. I, to be honest, I think it would have been more of an issue if you were in there wearing all Mercedes oh, stuff. Oh God, I never. That's done. who they're battling in the constructors championship. So it does, you know. Yeah. I don't think they're that all that worried, you know, that you were. And I had worn a Daniel shirt the day before in there. Yeah, and also Danny, like. Really early on, I think, like, passed someone or something, and and everyone in the Red Bull section cheered. Oh, right. Yes, so. yes. He, paid, he he passed signs 
Yeah, and Ferrari. everyone was really happy. And then I was like, oh, everyone loves Danny here. This is great. Everyone loves Danny, period. I know. He's so likable. But I got to, we got to, okay, so this is going to be the first of many shout outs that we give. So uh, Jeremy and Dan, holy fucking smokes. They made that experience incredible 20 times better than it could have ever been on our own it was they were so helpful and wonderful and i'm so in debt to them for that weekend they gave us and you tell you got to go down in the hole in the pit right now that's shout out number two blake friend blakey i love you you are just the sweetest human being and yes he got us a few grid passes is for from McLaren. So we got to go in the McLaren garage. We got to watch them pull out of the garage and we had the headsets and we were listening to what they were talking about. You and, and Aaron and Kristen. Aaron and Kristen and I, yeah. And it was incredible. And we were on the grid row and there was Shaquille O'Neal and I thought, poor Shaquille O'Neal. That guy could wear a hat and a face mask and sunglasses. That's Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah. I mean, you don't even really need to see anything other than just the height. It's, yeah, exactly. It's so impressive. Yeah. So anyways, he was getting a lot of heat, which I was grateful for because everyone was really focused on him. By the way, can't hide when you're him. You, you see him from a quarter mile away. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. But that whole experience was incredible. I was geeking out so much. It, it was, was so fun. fun. I was having so much nostalgia for uh, college football. Oh, right. Like sports events like that where everyone's just so excited and everyone's rooting for the same thing. Yes. And it's really lovely. And then um, Verstappen oh. won. So, so we always want Danny to win. Of course. But in the event Danny can't win, at, for me, it has to be Verstappen. Yes. And it was an incredible race because right at the end, um, the two people that we were rooting for the most we're, we're experiencing major challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, Verstappen with making an early uh, second pit stop and his tires running out of grip and, and Hamilton catching him. So tons of anxiety there. And then uh, Carlos Sainz catching Danny, having a little more pace. And then they had a full-on dogfight and Danny was victorious. There was some contact. There was a broken arrow. And then Carlos started dropping down. He started slower laps. So Danny was in the clear, switch it over to Max. It got so intense at the end, but Max held on. So we got everything we wanted. So fun. And he, since he won and he's on the Red Bull team, uh, champagne exploded everywhere. (laughs) We were in a shower of champagne, which was really fun. (laughs) It was great. It was great. I can't even believe the whole trip. I just thought oh, we are the most spoiled human beings on the planet, really and I'm going to take it. Yeah, I'm going to take it. Um, then, just to cap off a perfect, perfect weekend, uh, Danny and Blake, you like, what should we do on Monday? We have the day off after the race. I said, have you ever been tubing? I suggest tubing on the San Marcos River. So I don't know how many were <laughs> of us were oh, there. My gosh, Thirty he- people. We had twelve. Maybe he had twelve. Maybe it was like twenty-four people. Yeah. Or something. Some, oh yeah. Get on the river with 24 people <laughs> and float down the river. Um, everyone's drinking and having a blast. I'm jumping off bridges. Everything's heavenly. It's so enjoyable. Even you are having a wonderful oh, time. Oh, I had so much fun. Why it, even me? Definitely me. Well, because it's kind of out of your con- – you're not like one that's going to look up tubing somewhere. You're right. Because you don't like to be in the water per se. Exactly. But I was, I'm setting up – that you were actually having a really great time, which made me happy. I was checking in and you were loving floating around. It was great. It was great. And then, and this is this is my <laughs> fault. Uh, I've been on the San Marcos River a couple of times and I thought we were on a section that has this very gentle little spillway. 
uh, cement smooth. You just coast over in your tube. Not a fucking deal. That's what I believe we were coming up to. Mm -hmm. So I've got Delta on my lap. And we're first to go through. And right as we crest this this kind of drop off, I, oh, this is these are just big rocks. It all's funneling so into this rapid. It's a shoot. Yeah, it's yeah. A, yeah. There's a, a natural shoot. So we go through first. We come off the tube. I'm holding her above my head so that she won't go underwater. But there's a point where I'm now getting sucked underwater. So if I don't let go of her, I'm going to pull her underwater. So I let go of her and then shoot back up. <laughs> it's like a river rafting movie. I see her paddling. I swim over and grab her. And then I get her to the shore. She's not super stoked at what just happened. She's crying loudly. She's crying loudly. Um, I'm bleeding excessively. Mm -hmm. uh, knee, whatever, doesn't matter. And then my, of course, my very next thought when I've got her on the rock is, I Monica, right? Yeah. We're, we're, as we've talked about in here, we're not sure <laughs> that you can swim anymore. We just don't uh -huh. know. We just don't know. We, we just <laughs> don't know. Um, yeah. So when we're in these tubes and we're coming, we see, you know, from, from a distance still, the mm -hmm. little, the drop off, the yeah. easy drop off, Kristen says, well, we should go that way because we can't go down those rapids. And and our fearless leader says, says, of course we can. And so we're like, all right. And then, but oh also this whole time, I'm Molly and I, our tubes, we're holding ourselves together by our legs. And it's yeah. really fun. Mm. And But I'm backwards then. So then I was like... All she sudden, also has Lily at that point or Dahlia? We have Dahlia and Lily. Okay, great, right. And uh, two kids with us. and um, <laughs> On their own tubes, four tubes. Okay. And I'm also holding on to Kristen as well. So we're all like in this thing. Flotilla. Exactly. And uh, all of a sudden, we're getting closer to the area. And Kristen's like, Delta's crying. Uh-oh, Delta's crying. And then Molly's like, oh, Delta's crying. And then Kristen leaves and starts paddling very quickly to, to pass it. Uh-huh. So to go she, to the shore. To go to the down. shore. Exactly. So she so she would miss the rapids. And I was like, wait, I want to do that. I want to do that. I do not want to do this. I do not want to do this. I was really panicking. And I was also backwards. I was like, wait, should I focus on now moving or should I try to get out? And then and I, can I just gotta add, yeah. I'm on the rock yeah. staring at you. Yeah. Because I know there might be problems. Yeah. And I see before you've gone over the rapids, all hell's already broken. Yes. <laughs> you, you, you were off, as I recall. You were off your tube before you even went over. I was. Yeah. Because one of the kids was like, no, I do want to go. And I was like, get out of the way. <laughs> Everyone get out. I have to be, I, oh my God, I can't. And then I was like, I'll just swim. I'll get out of the tube. So I got out of the tube and I was already there. Then you just went over got, the falls. Pulled in immediately mm. in no tube. Oh. I I thought I was like, but I don't know if I can swim. Yes, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm I'm just watching the whole thing, and I'm thinking like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna need to jump in, like for sure. <laughs> 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 and you make it pretty quickly to a, a station of rocks. Yeah, and you go immediately. I didn't like that, <laughs> and I was like. Oh my God, I fell. I mean, it was like you and your soulmate Delta, you had both had the exact same experience. I, I just felt so heartbroken. The baby, I didn't like that. I don't even remember saying that. So I guess that was yeah. just a guttural oh. <laughs> reaction. Also, not to mention my boob was out. It, it, it came out. 
my boob came out. Oh, Everything was completely oh, scattywampus. Oh, I hated it so much. And I really was like, I knew it. I know myself. I know it. Like, I, this is why I can't be peer pressured because I know when I can do something and when I can't. Uh-huh. And when I can push the limit and when I can't. Were you mad at me? No, oh, not okay. at all. Okay. But I should have been way more clear. I don't want to do that. Yeah, you don't want any adventure on the water. I didn't. Right. No. Yes. I yes. barely want to float. Right. But then that was so fun. So I was like, yeah, it just was, I was, but, it was so scary. But here's where I want to applaud you. Thank um, you. you turned it around. Yeah. You got back and I thought, uh, I, based on what, uh, you know, the situation when you got to the rocks, I thought, fuck, she's done. Like, <laughs> and understandably so, she's, this is a wrap for her and we're not really to the pickup point yet. Yeah. Now, so I was starting to compute how I'm going to do that. Then Delta went and go down the rest of them, which were gentler. So I had to figure out how to, I had to swim back up around that fence to walk her to the end, blah, 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 blah. It was a whole thing. Then just randomly, they're doing some kind of civil works project and they've kind of got these inflatable uh, catchers that are crossing the whole river, (laughs) which we then have to lift everyone's tube over to that to continue on anyways. Yes. It was spectacular day. It was. I I still look at it as a net positive. Okay, good, good, yeah. good, 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 good. I didn't die. You didn't die. But I no. almost died. And then I- And you didn't get any cuts? No, I did. Oh, you I did? got okay. some cuts and a lot of like, a lot of soreness. Okay. <laughs> okay, like you had had a Real seizure at night. <laughs> Perhaps, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it, but then I felt, it was felt so embarrassed. Yeah, but no one had saw, no one saw except for Molly and I. Yeah, but yeah. it was just really embarrassed. I just was like, why can't I just like do anything? Oh. And, but then when we met back up with Danny, I was like, did you, how was, did were you fine on the rapids? He said, no, I almost died. Uh-huh. I said, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I felt a little better knowing I wasn't the only one. And he's very accomplished. Yes, he's a daredevil. You know, I, I was thinking after the trip, um, you know, one of the other times uh, he hung out with me, I took him motorcycle riding and people were crashing off the side of this mountain and he yeah. was coming. And I thought, you know, McLaren would be smart to put it in his contract. That he's <laughs> not allowed to hang you. out with me. Like, <laughs> exactly. They should really consider that. They've got quite an investment into him. And yeah. it might be time for them to exclude me from his life. I, I, <laughs> I don't disagree. Then I went to Salt Lake again. 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 At another incredible meal. In fact, this time the brisket was even better. So good. Oh, what a trip. It was It was like, I kept just getting overwhelmed with like the the amount of, oh, one other shout out. There's really two other shout outs. We have a lot of we shout outs. Of, okay. One other shout out is um, Matt. Okay. Matt Collins. <laughs> Matt Collins hair. Was is that his Instagram? Um, stylist. Stylist. Matt Collins Matthew Collins stylist. Matthew Collins stylist. So prior to this my full extent of, of, of Matt's driving prowess was he had come to the sand dunes once and I put him in a razor and he did well. Yeah. But I also knew from you that he drives kind of slow generally if he's just cruising around town. So before he's we left. He's going to be so mad. No, he's not. This whole thing, I'm going to blow his pants off okay. right now. So right before we left the house and it's, you know, going to the track on race day with 150,000 people also going to the track. I asked him before we pulled out because we were in two cars. What is your, what level of aggression are you comfortable with? One out of 10. And he said, whatever one's required. And I was like, 
wow, okay. Mm-hmm. And it started slow with some lane changes, this and that, some dancing, some disco. <laughs> and he, he was never got more than three feet behind the bumper. And then it just escalated from there. And he was over curbs and in yep. residential neighborhoods. And he was an assassin. I would compare his performance to Steve McQueen and Bullet. He, he, it was amazing. I was very impressed. I was very scared for him. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And he, he rose. He rose to the occasion and dominated. And it was mind blowing. Everyone was very, very happy and <laughs> impressed. Okay, that's one shout out. Another shout out is from the beginning of the trip. So what we realized a little too late is that obviously it's F1 weekend in Austin. Obviously you cannot get a car. Cannot rent a car. Can't rent a car, can't book a car, can't do anything. No there's Ubers no are available out by where we're staying. Exactly. There's So there's some panic of what are we going to do? We have, we no have one vehicle, Chrysler. God bless you, Chrysler. You, Another Chrysler. shout out, Vince. I love you, Vince. Yep. Vince had some Pacificas down there for the race because of Alfa Romeo. He said, are you going to need one? I said, oh, my God, if I could be black on black on black, yes, please. So uh, so we had 22 people in a seven-passenger vehicle. Yes. And then <laughs> Laura, oh, thank goodness. Shout out number 20. She f- f- talked to her friend who lives in Austin who knows someone who has a dealership or like a car rental car. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what he has. He used car garage. I don't know. Mm-hmm. He had cars. He did. And he, we don't know this guy. We don't know anything about this guy. Nope. He's in Laura's phone as Danny car guy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And this beautiful person, he dropped off four Cars. Cars at the airport. This is unreal. I know. So when we landed, we walked into the parking garage. There were four cars for us with the keys in the cars. He wanted, he like refused money. Right. We're like, definitely we're paying, we want to pay three times what it would have cost to rented cars because he bailed us out and we're happy to pay. And his name is Danny Gomez. Danny Gomez. And do you know the name of his business? Unfortunately not. Fuck. But if anyone in Austin walks around and meets this Danny Gomez, please buy him a, a drink on us. Yeah, and, and you, we'll pay you, but back. on us. We'll pay you we'll, back. We'll Venmo you yep. if you can uh, put a receipt <laughs> in, on Instagram. <laughs> to prove it. And but then I got to we'll say, Danny Gomez. Danny Gomez single-handedly saved our trip. Absolutely. It was going to be a fucking disaster. I don't even know how anyone was getting to these houses. They were 30 Yo, miles from the airport. We had two houses, too, that weren't next to each other. No, they're out in the country. Oh, People would have been so miserable. Like, okay, well, everyone pull a number. What six people get to go in the Pacifica out oh. of this house? It, the, oh, what a short... I'm I'm embarrassed, too, because I rented those houses six months ago. Like, I was I was ahead of it. You were. I had already secured tickets. I had like I was so ready for this trip. I had the van, and then it just occurred to me like I should look into other rentals just for everyone else. Gone, gone, gone. What an oversight. I hadn't. I wouldn't. I was not thinking about that at all. I never would have thought about it. We just got there, but <laughs> fuck. Oh my god. Anyway, so that is the major shout out of the trip, Danny Gomez for real. Like wow. And then I have one more shout out. Okay. So um, you and Kristen had to go to. Uh, Waco. Waco from Austin to do press for Hello Bello. We opened a factory. You, you see oh, pictures? I, they're gorgeous. So okay. fun. We're pulling up. It's like an industrial complex in Waco. There's a bunch of humongous buildings, and we see 
a quarter mile long diaper virtually yeah. in the distance. And I'm like, could this, could they have possibly decorated a 300,000 square foot building, which they did. Yeah. It's all of our patterns. It's amazing. It's so cute. Oh my God. I can't believe it's a factory. So, right. so cool. Okay. So yeah, we went there for okay, that. Okay. So you guys did that. Jess and I traveled with the girls back, the uh-huh. kids, and it, uh, they were great. Everything was fine. Except, you know, the airport was a little crazy. Again, I was like, Tuesday, that should be fine. But it was, it was hectic. Yeah. And then- we get so we get through. We get through security. Everything's great. They've done such a good job. And Lincoln says, "There's Starbucks there." Lincoln says, "Can I get a cake pop?" And I said, "Of course." So, <laughs> of course. well, they had just you know done a yeah. really good job. They deserved a reward. So I said, "Of course." And and Delta was like, "Me too." I was like, "Yeah." So and you needed a mug. You already had a mug. I needed a mug. They didn't have them. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So then we walk up. We see the Starbucks line is incredibly long Mm -hmm. and I said well let's just look and see if they have them so we walk up and we're like you know kind of talking about it like oh do they have them do they have the cake pops oh and Lincoln's like yeah I see one I see a cake pop so we get up and there's one oh boy and I was like okay well there's if there's only one we can see if they have any in the back but if there's only one like we'll have to split it and then Delta of course is like she can have it (laughs) and I was like okay great so I almost died yesterday (laughs) I have a new gratitude for life (laughs) (laughs) so we get in the, at the end of this really long line, it was gonna, but it was fine. I was like, we'll wait in it, we'll get the cake pop. But there was a little fear of like, well, if that if someone else in this line gets has it. a hankering for a cake, pop. yeah, yeah. We're standing there for like 10 seconds, and this incredibly nice man comes up, hands me a bag, and says, I was just really worried that oh. somebody would get the cake pop before oh. they got there, and I was like, oh my god. What? Yeah. People are so nice. Austin in particular, we keep getting these impossible miracles. Last time it was Houston Street with a pontoon (laughs) boat. This time it was Danny Gomez with these cars. Yeah. I don't know how many signs the universe has got to send us to tell us to get down there permanently. It was really sweet. I thought that was just the nicest thing ever. That is. So um, that was the trip. So nice man, if you bought a little girl a cake pop. Okay, if you guys see that nice man, please buy him a drink on us. We'll Venmo you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, We'll cash app you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that was the trip. Trip was great. Um, and, And we're home now. And this was David Copperfield's episode, which right. was so fun because I love magic. Mm-hmm. I just love magic. And I do have some facts real okay. quick. So okay. let's just blow through those, okay? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you said his dad was a haberdasher, and he said his dad never said that. And it uh, reminded me that my first line in my fifth grade play ever was, here is the hat your worship ordered. And I was the haberdasher on Taming of the Shrew. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but people are still talking about that role, that performance. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's kind of legendary. Yeah. It was small, but I made a big, like, big impact. There's no small roles, only small <laughs> actors. <laughs> I was, I was both, both. a small role and small. <laughs> um, okay, haberdasher in British English, a haberdasher is a business or person who sells small articles for sewing, dressmaking, and knitting, such as buttons, ribbons, and zips. Mm. In the United States, the term refers refers instead to a retailer who sells men's clothing, including suits, shirts, and neckties. His father did do that. Exactly yeah. that, yeah. His <laughs> father was a habitat, whether he wants to acknowledge <laughs> that or not. Um, is Menlo Park where Thomas Edison invented the light bulb? Yes. Mm, great. 
The Arthur C. Clarke quote, he said, every new piece of technology is magic. He said he messed it up. What's the real quote? Real quote is, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. There we go. It's a long word, indistinguishable. But a good one. Yeah, really good. Good, good, good. Uh, well, there's a game that we'll tell people about, but not today. Yeah. Next time. Okay. Um, we would call that a uh, verbal dump, like a photo dump on Instagram. Uh-huh. That was our verbal dump of Austin. Yeah, you're right. Um, one thing I just have to say, uh, our friend Anna, her dad got disappeared by David Copperfield. No. Yes. When did you find that out? On the trip? She, n- well, I forgot that she actually did tell me that a long time ago, but okay. then she brought it up again, obviously, when I said we interviewed him. And I said, well, what What does he say? And he he's, he'll never say. He never says. That's right. He says he disappeared. That's right. He yeah. vanished. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find the Ray-Ban knockoff Ray-Ban story because obviously when I'm Googling it. It's just trying to send, sell you some. That's right. Yeah. Um, and that's all. Well, I love you. And I, love you. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this live performance of a fact check <laughs> without any editing. See you next time. Bite us in the buns. Bye. Bye.